Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Researchers from Johns Hopkins University did an extensive study looking at the issues of medical errors and the number of lives that are lost in the United States every year because of these errors. Now, these errors include people who go to the hospital to get treatment for one thing or another or to have surgery for one thing or another. And then, unfortunately, because they're in the hospital and because of either negligence or other errors, uh, they suffer consequences, not even related to why they were in the hospital in the first place. So the medical errors in hospitals and other healthcare facilities are incredibly common and may now be the third leading cause of death in the United States, claiming 251,000 lives every year, more than respiratory disease, accidents, stroke, and Alzheimer's. So the person who uh, led this study is Martin McCary, and uh, his research involves a more comprehensive analysis of four large studies including one by Health and Human Services Department's Office of the Inspector General and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that took place between 2000 and 2008. His calculation of the 251,000 deaths equates to nearly 700 deaths a day, about 9.5% of all deaths annually in the United States. So I give you those details because I think it's important to show you that this wasn't just done by some schmuck. This was done by researchers who looked at four studies and came up with this conclusion. And these researchers are from Johns Hopkins University, as I mentioned before. So the results are pretty devastating. And this is one of the stories where, you know, we come across a problem and I'm not quite sure what the solution is. And it seems like the researchers don't have so many solutions either. One of the problems that they bring up is that there isn't like a standardized way of preventing these errors. So you have, let's say, um, the aviation industry. And there are standardized ways to ensure that people don't die, right? And they're saying that you don't have, like, a uniform policy for hospitals throughout the country. 
I don't know how true that is, but that was one of the issues that they brought up. Yeah, it's it's really it's really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't know how you fix it either. I know, I am confident that there are very few, if any, you know, medical professionals out there who go to work saying, I want the hospital to fail the patient. Of course. So I don't think that that's the problem. I think it is. Hospital to hospital, it's difficult. Uh, you know, there are hospitals that are very reputable that are still training people on, that are still training, you know, medical students on how to perform medical procedures and and, and the like. And so it leads to that. There, there was one uh, study that came out years ago that really first brought this to the forefront. And since then, they say that the one major stride that's been made is in preventing uh, infections that happen at the hospital. So mm-hmm. that, that is one thing. But the other side of it is, you know, this is also known as a litigious society. Mm-hmm. If you talk to any doctor out there whatsoever, and I have many friends who are doctors, it's the malpractice insurance is astronomical. Right. And while some studies say that it's come down over the last 10 years, it's still, like, it's tough. So why would you admit when you've done wrong if you've done wrong from a financial point of view? Of course yes. there's a Hippocratic Oath, but, like, there are these things that we have to at least call out, even if we're not accusing anyone of them to say that that's part of the dynamic, that we need to find a way that, our, that reinforces our priority is health, our priority is not getting you in trouble. We just need to fix this, even if it may yes. be uncomfortable or embarrassing for a so, so, yes, that was another thing, and I'm glad that you brought that up. One of the other issues that the researchers brought up is if there are mistakes made in, under, in other industries, let's say aviation, um, those mistakes have to be reported. And one of the reasons why they report it isn't just to get people in trouble. It's to prevent those mistakes or those errors from happening in the future. And apparently there is a lack of transparency in the medical field when it comes to these issues. So again, look, I don't think that any of these errors are done because of malicious intent. This is not to blame doctors or nurses or to you know demonize them in any way. They have difficult jobs. But at the same time, mistakes happen in every job. And the best thing that you can do is find strategies in preventing it from happening. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Venegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, May 13th, 2016. So I have been told the audio segment that you heard at the beginning uh, that was from the Young Turks. That was just this week uh, that they were talking about that, although that has uh, the point that they were making in the clip about the high number of medical errors that lead to deaths in U.S. hospitals. Uh, I know some of our previous guests uh, have brought this point up before in giving high recommendations that we make every effort to stay out of white-dominated hospitals to begin with. Uh, I think if you pair that with the book that we are reading now, Harriet Washington, Medical Apartheid, very important to take as best care of ourselves as we possibly can. Do everything that we can to keep white butchers, racists in white lab coats with a stethoscope to keep them away from us and folks that we care about. Uh, with that, uh, we are picking up uh, Medical Apartheid in Chapter Four, chapter four, the surgical theater subheading staging disease treatment under the microscope. Context of white supremacy, audio session number one. Staging disease, treatment under the microscope. Clinics and hospitals 
had an abundance of uses for the displayed African-American body. After the mid-19th century, a supply of black bodies was key to the primacy of the hospital as the new center for American medical instruction and treatment. African-Americans filled medical school rosters, as well as circus tents, because medical teaching, training, and research utilized black bodies disproportionately, and in some southern venues, they were used exclusively. During the 1830s, a Dr. T. Stillman ran serial advertisements in the Charleston Mercury for his infirmary, in which he principally treated skin diseases. On October 12, 1838, he made a fascinating addendum. Wanted, 50 Negroes. Any person having sick Negroes, considered incurable by their respective physicians, and wishing to dispose of them, emphasis added, the highest cash prize will be paid upon application as above. Slaves who had become too old or too sick to work supplied the bulk of hospital clinical material. They enjoyed no legal rights and could mount no legal challenge to their incarceration and treatment. Stillman advertised his desire for blacks who suffered from disorders far beyond his own specialty, such as apoplexy, kidney disease and stomach, intestinal, bladder, liver, and spleen disorders, as well as scrofula and hypochondriasm. He wished to test new techniques and medications he had formulated on debilitated and chronically unhealthy blacks in the same institution where he treated paying whites. He then marketed the medications and techniques. Slave owners were glad to rid themselves of old, sick, and unproductive slaves. It was a sage bargain on the slave owner's part, because the hospital took over all or most of the cost of feeding, housing, and treating the unproductive slave. If the slave died, his owner was spared the inconvenience and expense of burying him, because the hospital would retain the body for dissection or experiment. If the slave recovered, the master would once again profit from his or her labor and breeding. Moreover, the slave owner could lay claim to benevolence. After all, he was sending his old or sick slaves to a hospital for expert care. Free blacks were also vulnerable because they were easily incarcerated in jails and almshouses for a variety of minor infractions of the many regulations governing free African Americans. Why were blacks the chief denizens of teaching hospital wards? The hospital movement finally crossed the Atlantic from Europe. One room, one-year medical schools based upon the stereotyped dispensing of a few dozen nostrums fell out of favor and began to close as medical training began to focus upon scientific experimentation and anatomical knowledge. The new spirit of clinical inquiry questioned heroic but ineffectual treatments such as bleeding, purging, and cupping, causing them to quickly lose their cachet. Medical students were now expected to undergo training during several years, not months, on the clinical floors of hospitals. Diseases such as yellow fever, smallpox, malaria, and tuberculosis still flared into epidemics with regularity, and the dominant class of property-owning whites still relied upon private physicians to care for them and their families. However, they increasingly expected those physicians to have the professional benefit of hands-on clinical experience. 
However, acquiring such experience presented a challenge, because hospitals were about as popular a destination as homeless shelters are today. No one who had a family, access to a private physician, or financial resources to rely upon was willing to enter one. American hospitals of the 1800s were very different from the antiseptic, high-tech, ethics-obsessed meccas of scientific medicine that we know today. They offered few effective medications, and there were no federal agencies exerting exterior checks and balances to weigh the interests of patients against those of the hospital's physician owners. Without the therapeutic options, patient protections, medical advances, and knowledge that we take for granted today, the hospital was less an institution for healing than a physician-centered venue for learning, training, and experimental approaches. These were conducted on black people and on other poor, desperate people without resources. Perhaps Thomas Jefferson said it best, It is poverty alone which people's hospitals to be exposed as a corpse, to be lectured over by a clinical professor, to be crowded and handled by his students, to hear their case learnedly explained to them, its threatening symptoms developed, and its probable termination foreboded. The best one could hope for in hospitals and poor clinics was shelter from the elements and a minimum of dangerous, untried treatments among the infectious. One could, however, count upon exposure to a host of iatrogenic conditions, and upon being regularly displayed to students and faculty. Hospital patients also risked involuntary treatment, including unnecessary surgery, often without the benefit of effective anesthesia. Yet the doctors-to-be and their teachers needed clinical material, human bodies upon which they could practice diagnosis, treatment, and finally, autopsy, and dissection. Because no one entered a hospital voluntarily, this reluctant clinical material emanated from the lowest rungs of society. Sick or old people cast out of workhouses, almshouses, and in the South, plantations, filled hospitals. Clinic patients were not asked for their consent, and any physician who hesitated to operate on protesting slaves found he was legally bound to follow the wishes of not the slave, but the owner. In the South, African Americans were reluctant patients, but they outnumbered poor whites in hospitals. When the city of Richmond, Virginia, contemplated expending public funds to build a new almshouse, the professor owners of the Medical College of Virginia proposed a mutually beneficial alternative. They would take all the sick and infirm paupers into their infirmary and, in exchange, pay the city the funds it needed for a workhouse. In 1848, the faculty also proposed establishing a hospital solely for blacks, thereby ensuring a supply of patients for clinical instruction, although free blacks knew enough to give hospitals a wide berth when they could. Even in the North, hospitals expected blacks to submit to research as payment for having been treated in charity wards. Yet, no amount of money could buy a black patient a bed in the private ward where well-to-do whites received care. When a black patient was admitted in error to Boston's Massachusetts General Hospital in 1829, his doctor, George W. Otis, M.D., was severely taken to task. 
Clinical Objects of Wonder Clinical Display in which a person and his illness were presented to physicians as part of their education and training, took several forms. On the sick wards, the clinical material was subjected to medical observation, during which he was thoroughly inspected, examined, and questioned by professors or by students under the supervision of a professor. Many questions, some of them quite pointed and intimate, probed the patient's condition, lifestyle, and habits. Treatment was administered to blacks on the charity wards, but care was always secondary to practice, because the primary purpose of the clinic was the instruction, training, and experimentation for the physicians and students. Treatment took place without consent, often via unpleasant draconian measures. Publication in medical journals and texts was also a priority, because it afforded physicians an opportunity to promote their academic careers and to advertise their practices by immortalizing their discoveries and surgical triumphs while sharing clinical curiosities and insights. The disrespect shown the clinical material often included speculation about their sexuality. Speculation on the sexual experiences of men and women were incongruously introduced into medical discussions, even those that lay far afield of sex and reproduction. In August 1846, 20-year-old George Prey, a medical student at the University of Michigan, expressed surprise that the 16-year-old black girl whose body was undergoing dissection had died a virgin. In an 1855 Virginia Medical and Surgical Journal article, Medical College of Virginia professor Theodore P. Mayo proclaimed that Roy, a 24-year-old slave with bladder stones, is reported to be a great buck among the dark damsels. Because physicians shared the public's fascination with unusual bodies, many people with physical deformities were repeatedly displayed and examined. So were idiots and idiot savants. By 1830, Southern medical schools competed hotly for students, and a key selling point for any medical school of the antebellum era was the availability of copious clinical material. Advertisements trumpeted the prospective students' access to ample black clinical subjects in nearby hospitals, clinics, almshouses, and other institutions. For example, the Savannah Medical Journal boasted that the Negro patient census of the Savannah Medical College provided abundant clinical opportunities for the studying of disease. In 1840, the Medical College of Virginia publicly flourished a plan wherein it predicted, the number of Negroes employed in our factories will furnish materials for the support of an extensive hospital and afford to the student that great desideratum, clinical instruction. Throughout the South, medical schools published circulars exhorting slave owners to send them patients. The schools established hospitals for blacks, where fees were lowered dramatically or dropped altogether, and advertisements for the free care of sick and aged slaves were placed in rural newspapers. The Medical College of South Carolina's circulars boasted that the excellence of its institution was based upon the many available cadavers and the great opportunities for the acquisition of anatomical knowledge. 
Its boast, that the object of the faculty is to collect as many interesting cases as possible, for the benefit and instruction of their pupils, takes on special meaning when one considers that surgery at the Medical College of South Carolina was performed only on blacks, slave or free. The other Charleston school, the State Medical College Infirmary, admitted poor whites, blacks, and slaves. However, while the whites and free blacks were charged fees for lodging and treatment, slaves were treated for free. The school openly stated that the sole object, emphasis added, of the faculty is to promote the interests of the medical education within their native state and city. In 1855, an advertisement in the Atlanta Weekly Intelligencer invited slave owners to send slaves to Atlanta Medical College for medical treatment. The next year, the Atlanta Medical College boasted to prospective students of a case of hepatic abscess in a Negro man, whose damaged liver caused him to be lectured upon and prescribed for in the presence of the class over the course of several weeks. A black woman with tuberculosis was kept under observation for student edification for an entire year. We find this open desire for black bodies to fill wards, surgical suites, operating theaters, autopsy tables, and pathology jars chilling today. However, it simply reflected the social realities of the slaveholding South. What's more, this need persists in a more subtle form today. In the words of one physician, medical schools consider it a selling point when they have plenty of low-income patients for students and residents to see. We have already seen that medical researchers collected data and tested treatments pertinent to whites by using the supposedly inferior bodies of African Americans. In the same manner, clinics used supposedly anomalous black bodies and minds as exemplars of illness and as tools to assess patients' responses to therapeutics. Blacks were believed to sleep more, feel pain less, endure heat better and cold worse, and be more prone to fevers, tetanus, syphilis, yaws, and tuberculosis, but resistant to yellow fever and malaria. Their skins were thought thicker, their brains smaller. They were characterized as sexually precocious and intellectually retarded. Yet in a familiar but illogical leitmotif, treatments for whites were devised, adopted, or rejected based upon the black response to therapeutics. Most physicians chose simply to ignore these inconvenient contradictions, just as they had ignored the illogic of transposing experimental medical results from African Americans to whites. However, at least one addressed the issue head-on. In 1894, Rudolf Mattis, M.D., published a 125-page surgical analysis arguing that the scientific racist could have his cake and eat it, too. Mattis agreed with most contentions of black physiologic pathology, but he presented a shotgun marriage of his argument for rampant racial physiologic differences to a dogmatic claim that these differences would make no practical difference to the surgeon who wanted to assess procedures. He offered only opinion and little objective evidence to buttress his claims, so his work is less than convincing.
but at least he acknowledged the fallacy. Matas addressed only surgical techniques, leaving medical doctors to resolve their own scientific discrepancies. In 1854, the Richmond Daily Dispatch wondered, Among them, blacks, there prevails a superstition that when they enter the medical college infirmary, they never come out alive, although nowhere are they better treated. Events, however, reinforced black fears and outrage, which was sometimes shared by the white medical community. For example, an outraged owner solicited the opinion of an editor of the Richmond, Virginia Medical Journals, who agreed that therapeutically unjustified surgical procedures were being performed wantonly upon moribund slave patients in hospitals, and even upon relatively well ones, merely to allow doctors opportunities to practice or teach techniques. One such incident involved a slave whose master sent him to the medical school clinic for treatment of a stubborn leg ulcer. The surgeon decided to amputate the leg, surrounded by students, although no clinical indications existed for this extreme procedure. The slave complained that his leg was cut off just to let the student see the operation and to bring the doctor as well as the medical college into notice. The journal editor investigated and then agreed, censuring the surgeon as a heartless monster. However, neither the name of the surgeon nor of the medical school was revealed in the journal. The outraged editor even failed to sign his name. When Georgia physician W. H. Robert similarly decided to amputate the leg of a 15-year-old slave girl without making any other attempts to treat the relatively minor injury, the surgeon told his students flatly that the decision to amputate should be weighed differently according to the person's race and class. Amputation should be very differently estimated in the different classes of society. He explained that although such an extreme remedy is a horrid deformity that should be the last resort for a rich man, amputating the limb of a slave was a matter of comparatively little importance. Students should hesitate much less to remove a limb if he be slave than if he be a free man, and especially a white man. Robert supplemented his hierarchy of amputation with the familiar observation that the surgical pain felt by a slave was negligible, minor in comparison to what a white man facing the procedure would feel. Hospitals and medical schools engaged in far more than the passive observation in the clinic or on paper. Professors operated in hospital theaters, as they do today, for the benefit of medical students. The performances also boosted their own reputations. Being compelled to undergo surgery before an audience of physicians, such as Sam suffered, was the standard of care for slaves. Throughout the 19th century and the first half of the 20th, this use of blacks for clinical demonstration persisted largely unchanged, except that it eventually became a tacit rather than an advertised reality. Because of the widespread use of blacks as teaching material, new physicians left their medical school training with a deeply ingrained habit of looking upon blacks as demonstration material and experimental subjects. The demonstration of black bodies was not limited to the clinic. 
Publication was as important to a physician's career in the 1800s and 1900s as it is today, and the pages of medical journals were profitable places to display African-American bodies. Then, as now, glory followed the ability to be the first to identify and treat a condition or disorder. Such publications often proposed, supported, or highlighted physical differences between blacks and whites, differences that were seldom interpreted in favor of black Americans. In that age, no journalists, curious family members, or active patients had access to medical journals, only physicians, who were almost always male and white. As a result, these publications displayed an unselfconscious disregard for black patients' consent. For example, when a black South Carolina youth fell from a tree, injuring his genitals, the attending surgeon administered chloroform, which rendered him unconscious, then repaired the minor injury. After this successful repair, the physician decided to remove the boy's testicle, but he told the boy only that his injury had been sewn up. A week passed before the boy became aware of his loss, and the surgeon recorded his achievement in an article entitled, Chloroform, Its Effects in a Case of Castration. Publication in a medical journal was also important because, unless others could read of and reproduce the experiments with similarly successful results, a physician could not hope to be credited with discovery of a new therapy. Hospital and medical school records and medical journals showed that aged and infirm African Americans were overwhelmingly more likely to be used for medical display and demonstration of such new procedures, including description in medical journal articles, than were native whites. Historian Todd Savitt inventoried Richmond Medical Journals that described procedures upon 198 patients between 1851 and 1860, and found that by the most conservative estimate, blacks constituted 48.7%. Historian Walter Fisher suggested an even greater racial disparity. Of the 17 cases discussed in Richmond Medical Society meetings during 1853 to 1854, 10 were black. Thanks to the strong prejudice against medical display of the organs and bodies of whites, only the organs of blacks were displayed. When Professor Dugas of the Medical College of Georgia pioneered eye operations on slaves in 1838, he performed them before students. Three surgical cases, all upon Negroes, were also performed by that school's Dr. Paul E. before students as part of their training. Like the circus displays, medical journal reports reflected a fascination with unusual bodies. Not only were more of the displayed bodies those of African Americans, but the African American examples were also the most dramatically afflicted and most likely to be designated pathological. Six of eleven accounts of unusual body types in Virginia medical journals described blacks whose deformities included hermaphrodism, precocious puberty, Siamese twinning, and birth monstrosities, including an extrauterine deformed fetus that was preserved and displayed for 40 years. The white reports dwelled upon less fantastic, less freakish anomalies, including hydrocephalus, 
congenital heart displacement, and quadruplets. No white Siamese twins or hermaphrodites were ever recorded in these journals. This pattern is evident on the national level as well. During one period, five of every nine medical journal reports of unusual bodies featured blacks, including another hermaphrodite and another 40-year-old deformed fetus. Degrading medical reports that reproduced patients' bodies, faces, and even their names, and that speculated upon sexuality, were reserved for blacks. A white patient might sue. A black patient had no legal standing. When an 1849 Philadelphia Medical Journal article reported on a black woman who gave birth to twins, one black and one pale, the physicians speculated that the biracial twinning was the result of sexual congress on successive days with a white man and a black one. This sort of speculation would never have been offered about a white woman. Men were by no means spared sexual ridicule. Many curious physicians repeatedly examined Ned, a hermaphrodite, over the course of several years. And one doctor's medical journal report contained this passage. Whether his amorous advances to the dusky maidens around him has ever resulted in any practical display of virility is unknown. It is fair to conclude that no seminal discharge has, or ever will, take place. In such cases, the subject was blithely named in the journal or the exhibit, but no images of white subjects appeared, and they remained anonymous. Some displays encouraged the belief in widespread racial dimorphism. When a black American exhibited an unusual condition, physicians often took a leap of faith and racialized the condition, assigning it to all blacks or only to blacks. For example, Dr. Robert Knox published an article in an American medical journal wherein he described finding an eighth extra intercostal rib in several dissected bodies, all of which were those of Africans or black Americans. He conjectured that this anomaly was peculiar to blacks, Many such articles served double duty as pro-slavery propaganda because they interpreted these conditions or anomalies as evidence of racial inferiority. Similarly, anthropologist Ernst Haeckel asserted as late as 1906 that blacks retained a hand and foot morphology that was closer to that of the apes than of that of white men. There are wild tribes of men who can oppose the first or large toe to the other four, just as if it were a thumb. They can therefore use their grasping foot like the so-called hinder hand. The Negro, in whom the big toe is especially strong and freely movable, when climbing seizes hold of the branches of the trees with it, just like the four-handed apes. Such false assumptions were fueled by the difficulty of making internal observations of living persons. Scientists assumed that the skeleton, nervous system, and viscera of African Americans were quite different from those of whites. But proving this was a challenge. Because they had no internal imaging techniques, such empirical evidence for putative differences was ascertainable only through autopsy. The consistent display of black patients as mere disease exemplars 
also blunted physicians' compassion. The result of exploiting the clinical material was a damping of sensitivity and altruism toward black patients, and this became an important but unacknowledged part of a physician's training. One powerful illustration of this process is found in the touching November 1846 memoirs of the newly minted Dr. Prey. He recounted how during his first anatomical dissection he had felt an overwhelming sympathy for the fate of the young girl under his scalpel. Today, our subject, a poor Negro girl, was brought up. Poor, despised, and disregarded African, degraded and despised in life, you are to be made a spectacle and subject of ridicule and obscene jest even in death. Yet, under professional pressure, he immediately launched into a detailed public surgical dissection of the girl's labia. A year later, the same doctor laughingly wrote off his antics the night before, when he had delighted in making a group of white women of his own social class scream in horror. How? By frightening them with a piece of dead nigger that he had saved from the dissecting table. This sad psychological transformation suggests a possible answer to a troubling discrepancy. Most people enter medicine because they want to help others, and it is reasonable to believe that some, if not most, white physicians did intend to care for, not just to study or to display, their black patients. However, who were these sympathetic physicians of the time, as revealed by medical records? If they existed, why were they silent in the face of such egregious abuses? Slave narratives tell us that empathetic physicians could occasionally be found on plantations. But as the hospital system began to standardize the training of American physicians in the mid-19th century, kindly white doctors disappeared from African-American oral histories and certainly cannot be found in the Southern medical journals, which were replete with disdainful, mocking depictions of African-American patients who had undergone humiliating and painful involuntary procedures that no one questioned. Those doctors who viewed blacks as persons rather than clinical material were often those least able to help them and least likely to record their opinions in medical journals, beginning medical students. The dehumanizing effects of their training might easily have deformed their altruism. Students such as the young George Prey were likely to be the most idealistic of caregivers, but they were also the most vulnerable to professional repercussions should they offend professors. They could not afford to criticize instructors, even obliquely, by suggesting that the clinical material should be treated as sensitively as white private patients. Eventually, students absorbed the racist values that informed their education at every turn. Medical Fallout from Clinical Display By the mid-19th century, African Americans had already associated Western medicine with punishment, loss of control over their most intimate bodily functions, and degrading public displays. With the rise of the hospital movement, the need for living subjects forced African Americans to become objects to be studied, reproduced, written about, and practiced upon, always without consent, and sometimes with brutal violence by physicians who refused to acknowledge their pain. 
hospitals and medical schools became firmly cemented into the African-American consciousness as places of terror, violence, and shame, not of medical care. Moreover, clinics' use of black bodies involved far more than passive display. Medical students observed the course of illnesses in blacks for educational purposes, but clinical display grew to encompass prescribing for and treating patients in front of doctors in training. Physicians demonstrated and practiced invasive and surgical procedures on interned slaves and African Americans, sometimes to pioneer a new procedure, to display surgical acumen, or to enhance the reputation of practitioners. Black physicians, such as James McCune Smith and W. Montague Cobb, were consistent defenders of the human rights of African Americans, and were the first to object when these were violated. Unfortunately, black doctors' impact was limited, because they were not yet present in large numbers, and they usually were not permitted to train in the hospitals and clinics where the abuses took place. Black physicians still had to leave the South, and often the country, to obtain medical educations. Many were pressured to leave the country after obtaining an M.D. degree, and those who remained found themselves barred from necessary internship and residency training. The white physicians who were trained by peering at, ridiculing, and practicing upon the captive bodies of African Americans had been taught to view these bodies as expendable. When loosed upon the world as practitioners, they continued to view African Americans as subjects rather than as patients. Graduate physicians utilized unwilling blacks to display their therapeutic prowess or as raw material for research papers and surgical reputations. Medical display was not the final manner in which blacks' bodies were used against their will in the clinic. The next chapter explores how black bodies were medically exploited even after death, via autopsy and dissection. Chapter 5. The Restless Dead Anatomical Dissection and Display In Baltimore, the bodies of colored people exclusively are taken for dissection, because the whites do not like it, and colored people cannot resist. Harriet Martineau, Retrospect of Western Travel No place in the United States offers as great opportunities for the acquisition of anatomical knowledge, subjects being obtained from among the colored population in sufficient numbers for every purpose, and proper dissection carried on without offending any individuals in our community. Advertisement for the South Carolina Medical College, C. 1831 On September 11, 1977, Casper Yagen, a 68-year-old retired auto mechanic, vanished. His sister, Pearlie Smith, with whom he lived, contacted a police officer in the Washington, D.C. Missing Persons Unit and provided the photograph he requested. He said he would be back, but I didn't hear anything, Smith told the Washington Post. So, for more than a month, Smith, Yagen's niece Minnie Champ, and other family members made relentless inquiries of the police at the 5th District Station House. They also called area hospital emergency departments, which the officer should also have done. Everyone with whom they spoke assured them that Yagen had never been brought into a hospital, until Champ called the police again on November 1, 1977, 
and reached the officer with whom Smith had first spoken. He visited them again and made several telephone calls, which revealed that his original report had never been properly filed. The police made errors as well. The officer had never personally checked emergency rooms, and the missing persons unit had not followed procedure by checking Yagen's description against a list of recently deceased, unidentified patients. When police did so, they finally found Yagen's body on a slab in the anatomy laboratory of Howard University Medical School, where he was on the verge of being dissected by students. While his family had searched for him and repeatedly called police, he had lain unconscious in the hospital. When he died on November 3rd, his remains were sent to the medical examiner's office. Through some lottery or something, they decided to award his body to one of the medical schools, and it wound up at Howard. Dr. Linwood Rayford, then the school's assistant medical director, told the Washington Post. On January 4, 1978, police used fingerprints to identify Yagen. Rayford's forthright allusion to a misplaced patient and cadaver lottery is troubling enough. But Champ nursed an even darker view of the affair. She told the Post her uncle had been found up in the lab, you know, and they were making experiments. We were not making any, quote, experiments, Dr. Rayford dryly demurred. Champ found it difficult to believe the hospital had made good-faith errors, but it did not help that the hospital, which insisted Yagen had died of natural causes, was unable to tell his family from what illness he had suffered. Also, Yagen's pockets had contained the name and telephone number of a nephew, yet this man had never been called. Yagen's family was haunted by a plethora of unanswered questions. From what disease had Yagen died? Why had hospital personnel failed to report his presence or to contact his nephew? They took their quest for answers and justice to the courts, suing the D.C. city government and Howard University Hospital for negligence. Judge Nicholas Nunzio dismissed the negligence charges against the hospital, but a District of Columbia Superior Court jury decided against the city, awarding the family $53,000 and some answers. The ruling against the city and the award were reversed on appeal, but the answers revealed to Yagen's family how he came to end up in the anatomy laboratory. On September 11th, the police had taken an inebriated Yagen to a detoxification center. The paper in his wallet with his nephew's name and address was ignored and placed with Yagen's possessions in storage at the center. When he grew ill the next day, Yagen was taken to Howard University Hospital without these items and admitted as John Doe. Over the next months, hospital staffers repeatedly told Yagen's sisters that no one of his description had been admitted, even though he was the only unidentified patient in the hospital during this period. When Yagen died, his body was taken to the medical examiner's office, which donated it to Howard University Medical School. Among other things, Yagen's story illustrates a classic discord in interpretation between many African Americans and medical personnel. Intentionally or not, Yagen and his family were certainly abused and exploited. But like many African Americans, Minnie Champ imputed a darker motive to the hospital than was indicated by the facts. 
One factor feeding the friction between Yegan's family and the hospital may have been a confusion of the concepts of experimentation, dissection, and autopsy. Human experimentation entails an induced change that is carefully controlled and monitored to reveal medical or scientific information. Dissection, from the Latin verb desecare, means to cut apart. This procedure is undertaken to identify and examine a body's components during, for example, medical education. This is the surgical process that Yegan's body had been on the verge of undergoing. Autopsy and necropsy are the terms used for an investigative dissection by physicians who are attempting to determine the cause and other circumstances of a person's death. The hospital personnel, who in this case happened to be primarily African American, cast the Yegan incident as a regrettable fluke, rare and unlikely to be repeated. But is this characterization supported by the facts? How often do the bodies of the poor, the homeless, the friendless, or those who, like Yegan, simply look that way to medical personnel, end up on anatomy tables? What role has race played in such events, yesterday and today? The short answer is that the bodies of African Americans were once at the highest risk of being used for anatomy. In many areas, the majority of cadavers in research or dissection laboratories were black. But today, that risk has shrunk dramatically for African Americans. Experts claim that mostly white bodies are used today, but they can provide no good ethnic national data to quantify this. Because the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act of 1968 provides for the distribution of unclaimed bodies to medical schools and other public and private consumers of human cadavers and tissues, and because minority groups are overrepresented among the poor and homeless who constitute the bulk of these bodies, all indications suggest that black bodies are still more likely than whites to populate dissection laboratories. However, the historical data are unambiguous and reveal a long-standing preference for African-American bodies, which suggests that the fears of many African-Americans emanate from an ugly historical tradition, not from overly fertile imaginations. Minnie Champ's fears about experiments may well have been misplaced, but they were not baseless. They reflected a failure to distinguish the frankly abusive dangers of yesterday from the narrower hazards of today. Until the last century, American medical practitioners shared a deep frustration with much of Europe. Anatomical dissection had become key to physician training, but because the procurement of cadavers, and often dissection itself, was illegal and socially unacceptable, doctors and their porters had to employ a macabre creativity leavened with criminal force to secure the bodies of the recently deceased for dissection. These bodies tended to be black. The attitudes of white Southerners both toward the use of human bodies in medical education and toward blacks were silently but clearly revealed in the medical profession's heavy reliance on Negro cadavers, observed Todd L. Savitt. Hospitals habitually delivered black bodies directly from the wards to the autopsy tables without asking anyone's consent. Today, the legacy of this post-mortem racism 
survives in policies that continue to appropriate the bodies of friendless paupers, such as the homeless, a disproportionate number of whom are black, for medical purposes. Medical educators hold that dissection is necessary because students must familiarize themselves with the human body before they treat living patients. Who, they ask, would wish to be treated by a doctor who had never personally investigated and familiarized herself with a human body? However, recent studies show that fewer people are donating their bodies for medical education. In a 2004 Johns Hopkins report, only 49% of those surveyed said they would consider donating their bodies. Worse, up to 70% fewer African Americans said they would donate. Race and education were the most important determinants. African American literacy was still widely outlawed and remained low in affected communities until the early 20th century. So witnesses spread the information about this exploitation of black bodies via oral traditions that alerted others to the danger but sometimes exaggerated its extent. Word of mouth spread the reputation of hospitals and medical schools, which were not typically affiliated with hospitals until the middle of the 19th century, as repositories for black bodies that had been stolen under cover of darkness by night doctors for use in medical dissection rooms and laboratories. This oral tradition is frequently dismissed as old wives' tales and superstition, because tales of the theft of black bodies sound fantastic to many whites, and to African Americans who pride themselves on their scientific sophistication. Many people assume that belief in the theft of black bodies is paranoia, born of a violently racist history. But Janie Gaines and Sarah Cox knew from experience that black cadavers tend to disappear. In January 1998, the sisters frowned as they surveyed the crumbling headstones, trash, and tangled weeds strangling Greenwood, the Birmingham, Alabama cemetery in which their family had long ago laid their sister, Addie Mae Collins. Although most Americans do not know her name, Addie Mae is a national icon of sorts. The 13-year-old was a martyr of the civil rights movement, one of the four girls who were murdered in the 1963 bombing of Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church, a few days after the city's schools were integrated. Martin Luther King Jr. eulogized her, and her tombstone bears the rousing inscription, She died so freedom might live. It was thirty years before her sisters could bear to visit her grave, and when they saw its neglected state, they immediately arranged to have Addie Mae move to another, better-maintained cemetery. However, workers who opened the grave recoiled in shock. It was empty, devoid of casket and corpse. Addie Mae's body, like so many buried in black cemeteries throughout the South, is missing. No one can know with certainty who took the body or why. But many are convinced that her body joined the untold thousands of anonymous black cadavers on anatomists' tables. Skeletons in the Closet That Addie Mae's fate is far from unique was driven home by a grisly 1989 discovery during a breathlessly hot August in Augusta, Georgia. Construction workers renovating a stately 150-year-old Greek revival structure that once housed the Medical College of Georgia, MCG, 
stumbled upon a nightmare cached beneath the building. Strewn beneath its concrete floor lay a chaos of desiccated body parts and nearly 10,000 human bones and skulls, many bearing the marks of 19th-century anatomy tools or numbered with India ink. The cool, sunless basement had preserved the remains remarkably well. Bones and human dissected material littered the floors, metal tubs, and even latrines. Ossified human remains spilled from broken vats that had once held cadavers preserved in alcohol. Jars held fetal organs in vanishing lakes of whiskey, an indication that scientists had displayed the purloined bodies using the alcohol as a preservative, in addition to dissecting them. Because not only grave robbing but also anatomical dissection were illegal in Georgia until 1887, there was no legal source of such bodies. They were stolen, and in a manner that outraged decency and violated the law. This disarticulated nightmare was all that remained of faceless people whose bodies had been dissected, then unceremoniously scattered in the basement amid a jumble of broken syringes, microscope slides, scalpels, old pill bottles, and other medical detritus. As years passed, medical personnel covered each stratum of human refuse with quicklime to quell the stench, and later the basement was cemented over. Scientists determined that most of the remains dated from the 19th century, and detailed analyses of the bones and surrounding materials revealed that 75% of the bones in the basement were those of African Americans, although blacks constituted only 42% of the area's population. The late Robert Blakely, then chair of the Georgia State University's Department of Anthropology, gathered a multidisciplinary team, which later reported on almost every scientific and humanistic approach to analyzing the 9,800 human bones the MCG had used between 1835 and 1912. The ethnically diverse, one-third African-American, scientific team included medical doctors, archaeologists, anthropologists, medical historians, anatomists, biochemists, population geneticists, nutritionists, and even folklorists, who analyzed a great deal of information about the subject's bodies, lives, and cultures from the MCG remains. They determined age from the age-specific growth and fusing of bones, such as sutures of the skull and wrist bones. The angle of pelvic bones and bone thicknesses and ratios revealed gender. Many physiological and medical methods certified racial identification. The separate lives of blacks and whites in the mid-19th century South provided much of the definitive racial data. Blacks and whites ate different diets, wore different clothes, suffered from different disorders, worked at different occupations, took different medications, and died from different diseases and disorders, many of which left their marks on bones. Area residents, black and white, were also questioned about their knowledge and beliefs concerning the school's activities. This inclusive approach allowed the scientists to do more than interpret medical truths. They also listened to the previously voiceless African-American victims of body-stealing. Via interviews and questionnaires, blacks finally were able to contribute their perspective to the historical record. 
The basement was filled with mostly black bodies, not by accident, but by design. As the 19th century progressed, doctors' needs for cadavers for medical education and training surged, but dissection was abhorrent, a shameful fate reserved for the most heinous criminals, who received a double sentence of execution and dissection. As a result, physicians appropriated the bodies of enslaved persons with no legal rights, or those of free blacks with no rights, that a white man was obligated to respect. The bodies in the basement have been spirited by night from the graveyard, but not just from any graveyard. Most were taken from Cedar Grove Cemetery, an African-American burial ground. We know this for several reasons. Physiological, anthropological, and nutritional assessments of the bones and other remains established that three-quarters of them came from blacks, and Cedar Grove had held black bodies exclusively since the Civil War. Since its founding, black Augusta residents had consistently complained of grave robbing there. Also, the college's four or five porters had all named the black cemetery in their periodic reports on the provenance of the cadavers they provided to students each term. In a 1908 lecture to the students, for example, Porter Grandison Harris described his techniques and named Cedar Grove as his milieu. Other eyewitness accounts verified this, such that of MCG Professor Eugene Murphy, M.D., whose 1938 memoirs describe how he accompanied Harris to Cedar Grove as a young medical student seeking bodies. Half a century later, the MCG's scientific assessment helped to validate Black's tales of night doctors who reaped grim harvests in Black cemeteries. The school's dissecting tables, and finally its basement, became their victims' only resting places. But the basement lacked even the minimal dignity of the meanest grave. It was devoid of the placards, headstones, personal effects, or funerary artifacts marking the social worth or even the very presence of the dead. There had been no attempt to identify the bones, nor to arrange the remains in any attitude of dignity. Instead, they lay amid broken glassware, food containers, patent medical bottles, and even the remains of vivisected animals, just another heap of discarded training material. At first blush, robbing black graveyards to fill white anatomists' laboratories appears a purely racial issue. But men like Grandis and Harris complicated the picture because they were black. In 1852, the MCG bought the 36-year-old Harris, a strapping, muscular native of the Gullah Islands, on a South Carolina slave auction block for $700. The school had not purchased a strong man just to clean its floors. His chief duty was to rob graves. MCG faculty taught Harris to read, which enabled him to glean details of deaths and the dates of funeral services from obituaries. He would return after nightfall to pull bodies from the fresh graves with his powerful arms. After the Civil War, the former slave became a Reconstruction judge in South Carolina. But when African Americans lost their newfound political power, the MCG offered Harris his old job at $6 a month. Although he eventually learned some anatomy and assisted in training students, Harris remained an object of affectionate derision among faculty members who called him judge 
while issuing cleaning orders. But he was feared by blacks who knew that he was raiding Cedar Grove for bodies. When he died in 1911 of heart failure, he was buried there. But he was the only internee whose eternal rest was assured, because his son succeeded him at the MCG. Harris is a prime example of a cadaver procurer, or resurrectionist. Until the late 1770s, a resurrectionist meant a believer in physical or spiritual resurrection. Then the term underwent a sea change, becoming an ironic label for a man who unearthed bodies for illicit dissection. The other common term was resurrection man. Many medical schools found it convenient to leave the plundering of black cemeteries to black grave robbers because the faculty tried to distance themselves from resurrectionists who were caught with the goods. But the schools were obviously providing a market for the bodies, so their claims that the porters were overzealous freelancers were rarely convincing. To acknowledge the occasional medical victimization of blacks by blacks is considered heretical, but it is also an ugly fact. The nature of the medical abuse is racial, but class and self-interest could play pivotal roles, as with the black resurrectionists. We can only condemn the sad horror hidden in the basement of the MCG, but it is critically important to realize that the handling of the discovery provides a hopeful note, because the MCG resisted the temptation to minimize or hide its ugly history and cooperated fully with the scientific team. Although belated, this frankness fosters an atmosphere in which it is possible to nurture trust. Augusta's African Americans may one day participate in research without fear that they may be exploited and abused. Context of white supremacy. So we will pick up there for the second audio segment. We're in chapter 5. Chapter 5. Uh, I have the electronic version, so, you know. I could give you the page numbers, but it wouldn't make any difference. So just chapter 5, that's where we're picking up at. I think I told Karma this was going to come up repeatedly, both counts that she raised about the uh, abuse and defiling of black corpses and black participation in that endeavor. More to come in the second audio segment. Context of white supremacy, Harriet Washington's medical apartheid. If folks would like to participate, the number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, I posted the link, the article that was referenced at the beginning of the chapter uh, about the 68-year-old black male uh, who was found in 1977, not 1877, 1977, uh, where he was about to be dissected after his family had been looking for him. Uh, you can read uh, that article that she references from the Washington Post. Uh, it's after four months, body found at lab. I just posted it on my Facebook page. Uh, it's with the event for this broadcast, but you can check out what they uh, had in the Washington Post about that specific incident. Uh, if you want to participate and you do not want to use your phone, 
You can use the free Vope line. Uh, it works anywhere in the world. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you are not there and you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put in that address click the link on the left of the page uh it will say free vote line click that it will open a small window on your screen uh the top line it is a drop down menu select the number that i just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the next line it will ask for the code that code again is five six four nine four three the final line it will ask for a name uh, you can put in a real name you can put in a nickname if you just want to press random keys that is fine too whatever you're comfortable with once you get all that entered click the green button at the bottom of the screen it will connect you to the live broadcast you should be able to hear us it is the same procedure if you would like to participate you'll see the dial pad on your screen press star six when you do that you will hear the audio prompt to press the number one when you do that i'll see your hand on the screen we will get you on the line with that, uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, should be with us. Um, yeah, it's too many people to name. So everybody who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Just make sure you watch the background noise if you're in a noisy environment. Uh, all the folks who have a hand up should be with us. Feel free to share your thoughts. Yes, ma'am. Be heard? Yes, sir, Mr. Demi Ford. All right. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. First, I want to address a question that you had brought up in one of the earlier recordings uh, about the suspected racist Ron uh, Butler, the reading of medical apartheid, if it had any, you know, uh, disturbing features to it, to us or whatever. But I think that, you know, damage control by use of inference or the lack of inference on critical points. You know, the way information is delivered is important. And so races may have an interest in the way that truth is revealed. So one of the examples that I think shows it is on page 107 when uh, they're talking about the state medical college and it's saying that the other Charleston school, the state medical college in Fermanagh, admitted poor whites, blacks, slaves. However, while whites and free blacks were charged fees for lodging and treatment, slaves were treated for free. The school openly stated that the sole object emphasis added of the facility is to promote the interest of the medical education within their native state and city. So it's almost like in the reading that, you know, that could easily be skipped over. But emphasis on that point, we do not care about these Negroes. Um, 
And Miss Washington refers to Todd uh, Savet quite a bit. Uh, his book, Medicine and Slavery. I don't know if he's ever visited the cows, but I think he's an active professor right now, and he may be a good choice for uh, bringing some constructive information to the cows. Um, the medical students were intentionally taught erroneous information about blacks, that they didn't feel pain as much as white people, that blacks were either immune uh, to certain conditions or that any examples of abnormal, abnormality was exclusive to blacks, you know, which would cause students that's coming through the school, the medical school, uh, to form opinions about blacks that they carry on through their whole career. You know, one of the examples was that guy, uh, Dr. Prey, where he was at one point saying that he had some type of uh, benevolence for the 16-year-old, and then he continued to uh, butcher her after that, and then even had a section of skin that he called a piece of nigger that he carried around with him. So these guys, it's no uh, uh, question that they are racist. It's just how deep they practice. And they pass knowing that they're getting all these black people, stealing them from the grave to do medical research. Then they pass the uniform on anatomical gift act, organ donations, transplants, you know, gifts, and limit the liability of health care service. You know, trafficking human organs, this was the beginning of it. If they were robbing graves with no respect for the dignity mm -hmm. and sanctity of the family or the individuals, then it was going on then. Uh, it's going on now, still in human organs. But I want to say quickly, uh, Addie Mae, one of the teenage girls that were in the church bombing in Birmingham, uh, it's just, you know, disgusting. Her body came up missing, and to this day, I don't think they even know where it is. But while renovating the structure in a medical college, they found all these bones, right? 75% uh, of them was black people. But what was interesting, after they got all this team together, that they did not do any DNA testing that was available at that time to try to honestly uh, identify who these people were and probably notate the families, and then it may have been some type of, uh, uh, you know, compensation or whatever available. But at least you right. would know who the people were. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And none of that happened. And just quickly on uh, the Re Resurrection Man, uh, Grandson Harris, you know, like uh, Eunice Rivers in the Tuskegee, 
syphilis study, they bring up another black person, and he's the only name you remember on all this grave robbing, when the staff of that Georgia Medical College uh, had employed him first as a slave and then uh, as an employee to do it, and they should be the ones held responsible for the grave robbing. And Gus, uh, would you make sure that we have the link that we can make donations to? Uh, and I'll mute my line after that. Thanks for taking the call. Yes, sir. Uh, just quick uh, FYI, if folks are interested, if you have access to my Facebook, uh, I posted a link so you can see the narrator, Ron Butler. Uh, I suspect that this is a non-white person. Uh, I think someone asked last week because this is the same person who read The Half Has Never Been Told. I don't know if everybody has seen him or not, but I I think this is someone who would not be accepted as white. Uh, now, he does look like he might might have a white parent or what have you. Certainly, folks can take a look and come to your own conclusions, but um, I don't think white people would accept or classify him as a white person based on the photograph that they have uh, with some of the other narration that he's done. But y'all can, if you have access to my Facebook page, just look. Well, you, you'll see the event for today's broadcast for Medical Apartheid, and I posted it as a link. It's right below the article that I mentioned about the case in D.C. with the uh, 68-year-old black male being missing, and then they were going to dissect his body. But you can see what Mr. Butler looks like. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, um, greetings to you, Gus, um, to Mr. Demley and all the callers and listeners. And um, I missed most of the reading of the first section because I had to help my wife with um, my father-in-law. But I came in for uh, pretty much a portion of the tail section, and I wanted to speak to a couple of things there. Um, there was there was a paragraph on page what is it? page 120 for those who have the book. It's, it's, um, it, it starts on the previous page and carries over where they talk about the Medical College of Georgia and um, when they were renovating the building that in the basement they found just basically all kinds of medical waste and uh, mostly black people's body parts and whatnot. And I found that to be kind of like a metaphor for white people in the sense that, you know, we see them, they walk around with their Chanel number no. five and they wear all of these, you know, high and brand names that white people make. And because of the way that they've psychosocially conditioned us as black people, we think of them as uh, the, the highest thing to aspire to. And um, when you get beneath the surface, it's just like what Ben Tillman said, if you scratch the surface, you'll find that same savage, you know, rolling through the hills in Britain and Scotland. It's like, they are the ugliest human beings ever. And I mean, just to think of all those people who are discarded down there like waste and like trash, um, just really speaks to their psychopathology and how they hide things. It's like a metaphor for how they hide the, the worst aspects of themselves with this veneer of civility. And then when you get to, to, the, to the real nitty gritty of who and what they are, they're just savage subhuman animals. And then um, the... The other section, the other part I wanted to focus on is on page 122 where it says, the basement lacked even the minimal dignity of the meanest grave. It was devoid of placards, headstones, personal effects, or funerary artifacts marking the social worth or even the very presence of the dead. There had been no attempt to identify the bones nor arrange the remains in any attitude of dignity. Instead, they lay amid broken glassware, food containers, patent, patent medicine bottles, and even the remains of vivisected animals. 
just another heap of discarded training material. And that brings me back to Dr. Welting in her genius when she says that they view black people as life unworthy of life. That is the only way that you would treat other human beings in such a manner as if in your psychopathology they are life unworthy of life. And I just thought it was something to focus on to give us pause for thought for those creatures we live and work amongst every single day. And um, also the what happened to the young sister that um, that died in the bombing whose body ended up missing <laughs> kind of made me think of um, something that I don't think many of us ponder. When our ancestors were kidnapped, you know, you might have, and, and this, we could put this in modern terms, just imagine you have a child and you send that child to school in the morning. It's a routine that they've done, you know, their whole lives, and then they just never come home, and you never see them again. And, and um, that's what happened to our ancestors. Some of them just, you know, they went out to do their daily routine, and they were just never heard of. And just the, the psychological trauma, you know, um, for those people, you know, even today those black people have relatives who have disappeared and who are never seen or heard from again. This is the kind of fact, the, the thing that happened to us in the millions, um, hundreds of millions. So it's something to really think about and really give us insight into the, 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 the mindset of white people. And another thing I lastly wanted to touch on is in this book, when they speak of the dissection of uh, black people, they speak about it being done in a theater. And a theater is a term that's used in the military. So they're telling you it's medical warfare on black people. Because if you, if you if just look at the sections we've read thus far, it is warfare on the black body. And for them to put you in a theater, just like there's a theater of war, Iraq was called a theater of war, Korea was called a theater of war, Vietnam was called a theater of war. They're letting you know that they are at war with us. And also the fact that they use the term medical practice, that means that they're practicing on us. They haven't perfected anything. Our ancestors, when they perfected medicine, they did not call it a practice. It was called a house of life. They call it a medical practice because we are the guinea pigs that they're practicing on. And with that, I'll mute my line, and I'll have more to say on the second section since I'm here to listen to it. Thank you for taking my call, guys. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. No, um, I don't have a lot to say. Uh, this is just... Man, a lot to absorb. Um, I, I, I swear I have I have very limited knowledge of too much of this history, so I'm like kind of learning. And uh, all I kept thinking while listening to this is, uh, we often hear the analogies, you know, the the field nigger and the house nigger. And um, often the field nigger um, looks down at the house nigger like, you know, you know, you guys have it easy, you know, you're just walking around the house cooking. But, you know, the new term has to be the lab nigger. I know, you know, they have to be looking at the field nigger like, man, we should get to walk around and pick cotton. I mean, they're cutting our legs off, taking our testicles out. I mean, it's just, um, I had no idea that these colleges, um, you know, they got these these um institutions of higher learning that are held in such revere today, some of them, um, and, and, and um, you know, they facilitate a lot of the doctors and, and um, nurses that go around the country and work in these high schools. And, I mean, their whole history is terrorism, um, the whole medical history. And I, I like that little tidbit um, Roz added about it's a practice to them. You know, this is not perfected. Um, you know, so many teaching, teaching hospitals, it always seems like they're in the black neighborhoods. Um, just... Man, I'm just trying to put it in modern day context, but just hearing what these people had to go through, um, man, the, the police report part as well, 
police terrorism, um, couldn't get answers, you know, you're calling. They could have easily put one and two together, gave her an answer, but no. Um, just continuing terrorism by white people. And I'll mute my line, thank you. Nabby Heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, this is uh, a cool calling from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, this uh, reading is really interesting. I was just thinking about um, the words they use, uh, expert care and uh, their incarceration and treatment. But I was just thinking that just equals to uh, black torture, but they call it expert care and treatment. And I'm definitely going to be thinking differently now when I see advertisements for hospitals and things like that, and they say we have expert care and come get treatment. Um, I'm going to definitely um, think about black torture when I see that from now on. Um, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Other folks that we uh, have not heard from? Yes, hello. This is Martha. You're uh, not coming in clear. I don't know if you're on a speakerphone, but uh, you're not clear. Okay. Can you hear me now? Mm, that's, and I mean, like when I say a little bit, that's a minute improvement. Okay. All right. Then it's, it's my, uh, <laughs> then I'll probably not be able to say anything. I, I'll just listen in. I just mean, if you can hear me, all I'm going to need to know is the, the page number that you're on because I came in late. Uh, if somebody has a hard copy of the book and you can give like the actual page number, that would be great. As I, I said, I have the E, the electronic version, so I can tell you that we're in Chapter 5. We're kind of at the um, earlier stage of Chapter 5. We ended with uh, the last sentence that we ended on. Uh, the paragraph, it reads, although belated, this frankness fosters an atmosphere in which it is possible to nurture trust. Augusta's African-Americans may one day participate in research without fear that they may be exploited and abused. That's the last uh, paragraph, last sentence in the last paragraph that we stopped on in Chapter 5. Uh, we're pretty... It's in the middle of page 123. I'm go. sorry for interjecting. Middle oh, of no, page 123. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I get you, Ma'am, you said you were... That was all you wanted to, to say? Because I guess we can't hear you well, if you had any other comments. Yeah, well, it's just one of the comments. I remember um, on, on this show, hope, hopefully you can hear me, just to say it. Um, you had a show with Dr. Sub, S-U-G-G, uh, when he talked about, um, he did some research on um, European history, uh, Renaissance City Victorian, and he talked about mummies and cannibals and vampires. As, as I read this, I just... As I read this, the book, I just felt like what he said, it just it just chimes in with what this book is, is really about. Because it just it it, 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 it just it bothers the mind how 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 these people were and how they are today. It, it just boggles the mind. Um I, <laughs> I really don't have um <laughs> really too much to say. It just reminded me of that interview you had uh with Dr. Uh on his Book 
great reference, great reference for sure. Um, other folks who uh, we have not heard from, if y'all had commentary you wanted to add in as well, feel free. We got every. It looks like there are other hands up. Did we miss anybody? Anyone uh, have comments? No, I'm good. I'm just listening in. I didn't mean to uh, put my hand up. Right on. Right on. All right. I'm assuming uh, we got it. Was that somebody going to comment? Greetings, guys. Hi. Greetings, guys. Can Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Oh, hi. Um, I was on mute. I apologize. I just had a couple um, quick questions. This is V in New York. Um, um, on page 105, I just thought it was interesting how they um, continue to um, reference um, the bodies or the, the, the cadavers as clinical material uh, throughout their journals um, and, you know, try, you know, just to dehumanize um, the individuals that they were performing all these experiments and and autopsies and um, dissections on, and um, also when it goes also further going on 119, I believe it was um, when it referred to Adam A. Collins, and then further going on to speak about the the missing bodies in the basement or the bodies in the basement and um, Adam A.'s body actually being missing. Um, it just re reminded me of um, an instance where I'm from in Hamden, Connecticut, where there were um, a funeral director and um, a, a cemetery, they were all charged and there was these, you know, investigations on missing bodies and where did these bodies go and, um, you know, bodies not being buried where they, where they said they were supposed to be buried and families looking for their bodies. And this is, you know, recent times. This is like in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and even today, there's still people are still not knowing where their um, families' bodies are. And there was speculation um, that maybe that they were donated to, you know, the large hospital in, in New Haven, Yale New Haven Hospital, where they do a lot of research. And um, there's a large, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, a research facility there where they actually advertise um, and in my mind they prey upon you know the poor and the homeless and they say we'll pay you this much to come in and you know for this type of research and a lot of times these people are never seen again and who's going to know because they're on the street they're poor um, they're homeless people they're veterans and no one is really looking for these individuals but you know you, you when you're from an area and you get to you see these people every day, and then, you know, you hear, you know, different ones talking, or I haven't seen so-and-so in a long time, have you heard from them? And it just, you know, puts a little question in your mind. You kind of wonder what happened to these people. And knowing that these things go on, you know, even from back then into present day, it just, you know, it, it, it continues to put that in your mind of all these missing individuals and where they could be. Um, thank you for taking my comment. For sure, for sure. Um, anybody else that we haven't heard from have comments that they wanted to make sure they got in? 
begin every everybody. Uh, retired firefighter, do you have commentary you want to add in as well? Yeah, well, I I just uh, got the opportunity to uh, tune in. We're doing some work around the around the house. Uh, I, I heard about uh, uh, as far as bodies and, and experimentation, and I can tell you, uh, based on uh, non-white black people's position under the system of racist white supremacy, uh, our uh, dead bodies are a prime candidate for uh, any type of experimentation, uh, lessons to be taught to uh, as- aspiring doctors, future doctors, or or any anything that you possibly can use your imagination on what someone would do with a uh, a uh, body. Uh, it's been it's been and will be as long as there's a system of race and white supremacy done to our bodies. Uh, in a lot of cases, the uh, family survivors who expect their loved one to be uh, six feet on the ground is actually if not, they're in jars uh, with formaldehyde uh, soaking, so, uh, soaked in a formaldehyde either chopped up in different pieces or in whole to for the next class room study that someone is is uh, performing on that particular person's body in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, I mean, just leave it up to your imagination as far as what I what I figure. That's all I have to say. For sure, for sure. Anybody else that we missed? Folks had a hand up who uh, we have not heard from. Alrighty. Uh, I also uh, tweeted. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Until Justice. All together, no spaces at Until Justice. Um, but I posted the link so you can see uh, what the narrator, Ron Butler, uh, what he looks like. Um, as I said, the photo I've seen, I think he's a non-white person. I suspect most white people, I don't think they would accept him as white. Um, but you can check it out and see if that makes a difference on, you know, who is uh, narrating the text. Incidentally, I don't think I had mentioned uh, the author, Harriet Washington, and I did email tag for like months, long, long time. We were trying to get her on the program. She has published other books since uh, Medical Apartheid uh, came out. Uh, we were trying to get her on, and she was having deadlines with the other project she was working on, so just went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth uh, about having her as a guest on the program, uh, and we just were not able to get a, a time that would work out where she could fit us uh, in her uh, schedule, but that was one that we were working on for a long uh, time uh, and trying to get her on the broadcast, but even without that, we uh, have done a lot uh, on this particular subject matter down through uh, the years. Uh, some of the things that stood out uh, in the segment that we covered uh, from this week, I just again, she pointed this out last week that even if you were a quote unquote free black person, that that did not uh, insulate you from this medical barbarism uh, and you being mutilated uh, by racist doctors at all, that you could be preyed on and subjected to uh, the exact same thing. Um, I thought particularly the audio segment that I began with this week was about uh, the report that came out this week that medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the country today. That's 2016. 
um, comparing that with what she said that hospitals uh, back in, you know, 19th century, uh, earlier times, people did not want to go to hospitals. There was a great suspicion uh, of these places that anything could happen to you, that people used a private physician uh, or if they had a midwife or they any other alternative uh, than going to, I'm getting a lot of background noise. If you could use your mute button, if you know you're in a loud uh, environment or that sort of thing, make sure you're not using speakerphone. I can mute it myself, but just keep that in mind. Anyway, um, just the attitude about hospitals uh, that existed at that time, I thought was significant because it seems like it's radically different today. And it seems like just based on the report we started with third leading cause of death. I know Dr. Jesse Daniels, she talked about that a lot uh, and how medical malpractice and they just go in and do anything. And uh, these folks are, are just prescribing all these medications and unnecessary surgeries and what have you that. Uh, do no harm, Hippocratic Oath, that that just does not seem to be in practice, particularly pairing that with the white supremacy that dominates the profession, all areas of people, activity, the planet. Uh, next, because uh, this was brought up before uh, about consent. I think she mentioned it twice uh, this week. Uh, the first, I'll just read the first time where it pops up where she said clinic patients were not asked for their consent and any physician who hesitated to operate on protesting slaves found he was legally bound to follow the wishes of not the slave but the owner very important because that came up repeatedly and i just i think that's so important because frequently uh i mean consent is just totally laughable uh and even when they do ask it's very important consent uh according to the guidelines that were set down when they had the nuremberg trials it's not just i ask you if you're okay with these procedures it has to be clearly unambiguously explained exactly what it is that we're going to do and you have to be in position to decline without any form of coercion or punishment that you're going to be subjected to any sort of uh, retribution reprisals because you choose not to engage in this and I would submit under the system of racism white supremacy that is simply not the case there are a lot of black people even black positions uh, who have talked about I feel intimidated just being in a system of white supremacy. If I try to challenge or say that this is something that I don't want to do and I'm talking to a white person that they get on their high horse and I'm white. And who are you going to be to tell me that you're not going to do this? I know better than you that that still is the case. 2016 uh, moving forward. Just the use of the term great buck. Uh, this was a little bit later in chapter four. Uh, where she says in 1855 medical and surgical journal article medical college of virginia professor theodore p mayo proclaimed that roy a 24 year old slave with bladder stones is reported to be a great buck among the dark damsels where she was talking about this uh a theme of having all of these uh sexually racist stereotypes in the way that they commented on and thought of black people males and females in particular the term buck, it stood out to me just because, and I think this, the segment that we did this week in particular, uh, why I've said the term buck being a racist slur for black people and also uh, meaning a form of money, uh, a buck meaning a dollar, what have you, I think it is apropos because as we heard in The Half Has Never Been Told, the Negras are the bank. And in this section that we heard this week in particular, talking about how that was the pull, that's part of our prestige as a medical facility or research center, our proximity to Negras. Look at all of these black bodies that we'll have to work on. We can coerce them and bring them in and do all of our 
ghastly experiments and torture them and cut off their limbs and anything else we want to do. And then when we die, we'll raid their graves and continue our experiments and what have you and just total molest them in life and in death that that will build up our prestige. People want to come here because they'll know that we'll have tons and infinite supply of black bucks to work on. It stood out to me uh, plainly. Uh, the next section... Uh, Man, we had Dorothy Roberts. She was referenced uh, in this text earlier, killing the black body, and that was exactly where it came up. Uh, we had a caller. In fact, it came up twice. Dorothy Roberts was a guest on the program three different times, uh, and two times she was talking specifically about this subject matter, uh, the medical industry and healthcare. But she said, someone asked her if they knew about the rate of amputations of black patients. They asked her when she was on the first time in 2009, we were talking about killing the black body, she came back in 2011 to talk about her more recent book, uh, Fatal Invention, which talks about uh, racism in the healthcare industry and how that continues to be a problem. Most of that's talking about issues that are like 21st century issues. But she came back and she put this in the book. Uh, the only we just didn't get the credit for it. That happens all the time. <laughs> we, we do not get direct credit. She wrote in the book that she said she was on a radio program, The Cows, and she was asked about rate of amputation. And she said that black people get inferior care in all areas except for amputations that's the only area where black people yes white people go in you are going to get some form of amputation you are much more likely if you are a black person which relates exactly to what she uh, uh, harriet washington wrote in the text this week when she said uh the surgeon decided to amputate the legs surrounded by students although no clinical indications existed for this extreme procedure. The slave complained that his leg was cut off just to let the students see the operation and to bring the doctor as well as the medical college into notice. The journal editor investigated and then agreed, censoring the surgeon as a heartless monster. However, neither the name of the surgeon nor the medical school was revealed in the journal. The outraged editor even failed to sign his name. In my view, that's just letting you further see the racism white supremacy and that con that practice continues today where a white person practices racism and they still get anonymity they still get some form of protection and i would submit they're further showing you the racism because this white person who sees this like oh my god he chopped off that nigger's uh that nigger's leg but i don't want to be publicly identified because white people might come and fuss at me uh for seeming like i have some sort of empathy or compassion uh, for these niggers, and I don't want that to happen either. You do get in trouble if you're a white person. You're seeming like you're not going along with the business of white supremacy. Um, moving forward. Uh, oh, yeah, I thought this was a really important uh, passage. Which she says, uh, this is from Chapter 4, such false assumptions were fueled by the difficulty of making internal observations. And this, uh, matter of fact, make sure I get the whole section here so you all know the false assumptions that she's talking about uh, so the full portion reads uh, so this is where they're talking about how black people have an excessively large big toe and they can use it to grab trees and climb and all this other nonsense so she says such false assumptions were fueled by the difficulty of making internal observations of living persons scientists assumed that the skeleton nervous system and viscera of African Americans were quite different from those of whites but proving this was a challenge I'll stop there in my view I just think that is cutting whites an astronomical amount of slack, and it's just not accurate. It's not because uh, they had a difficult time making internal observations of the body, and they couldn't see these. It's fueled totally by their white supremacist uh, projections of black people. That's it. It's not about because these a lot. She has this in the book. A lot of these racist 
thoughts and ideas about black physiology, they continue today. You see this when they're talking about black basketball players. Matter of fact, that's another guest we had on the program, John Hoberman, who we had on twice, his book that we talked about the second time he was on, Black and Blue. It is also about racism in the health industry, and he makes some really important points uh, in that book, even though he's a suspected racist. But in his first book, he talks about you still, 21st century, have all these racist notions uh, that people use to explain why black people are such great athletes that they have a longer heel bone or some other nonsense, which is totally not supported by medicine, which the total foundation for it is white supremacy. It's something specifically deviant about black bodies, uh, which is why they're well suited for any sort of physical activity we can beat on them and abuse them because they can handle it they're rough and tough that's what negras are good for uh but in my view that is uh she just in my view is again cutting white some slack i think we've uh, noted that a few times in the book as we have continued um and she and it comes back again this cutting white people some slack uh just a few pages later where she said uh the sad psychological transformation i think it was mentioned about dr prey where at first he was kind of feeling bad or some sense of remorse about this black female who was going to be carved up uh, and then he changes and he has fun doing this and scaring white people with a dead black person he's carved up uh, which he says this is Harry Washington she says this sad psychological transformation suggests a possible answer to a troubling discrepancy most people enter medicine because they want to help others and it is reasonable to believe that some if not most white physicians did intend to care for not just to study or to display their black patients however who were these sympathetic physicians of the time as revealed by medical records if they existed why were they silent in the face of such egregious abuses slave never does tell us that emphatic physicians empathetic excuse me uh physicians empathic excuse me empathic physicians could be occasionally be found on plantations but as the hospital system began to standardize the training of american physicians in the mid-19th century kindly white doctors disappeared from african-american oral histories and certainly cannot be found in the southern medical journals journals which were replete with disdainful mocking depictions of african-american patients who had undergone humiliating and painful involuntary procedures that no one questioned in my view this is majorly cutting whites some slack and even to me seems to be an example of looking for a kindly white person a not white white uh, a not racist white person the uh, mythological good white. Uh, and I, I mean, it's just not based in the historical record, even according to the text uh, that we have been presented. Uh, the entire system, I thought she did such a great job of laying the foundation. This is not anything peculiar. This is the entire system of white supremacy, all areas of people activity. There is supposed to be widespread disdain and misuse of black people. Uh, if you join, if you say, hey, I want to be a doctor, you're not thinking I'm doing this to, te- to treat niggers well. If anything, if I'm going to take good care of them, I'm just going by what she said in the text. It is, I am, this is my business. I'm going to make some money from the white slave owner who owns this nigra, who will pay my salary if I can get this nigra healthy and back out in the field so that they can pick this cotton, tobacco, and breed. I thought that was important as well because she continues to uh, emphasize that that is one of the main duties of black females, breeding, procreation, being raped, so that you can have the next generation of enslaved black people. I just, uh, just looking for this kindly white doctor who means the darky well uh, i just i have no idea what that can be based on other than our programming as victims of racism to search for a good white person it's got to be there somewhere and even 
in the face of astronomical, seemingly infinite amounts of evidence that such a person just does not exist. And I can even include Dr. Cambon's turn, statistically insignificant. Moving forward, last uh, thing I'll get in. I was stunned. I think it took me a moment to even recover when she was talking about the case. Uh, this 68-year-old black man and who was under the influence of alcohol. Sobriety would be best under conditions of war. Casper uh, Yeagan. Uh, I was stunned because so much of this text so far has been talking about things that happened uh, during the antebellum period of this area of the world and 19th century, that this is 1977, not that long ago. I suspect a lot of people on this call right now were alive uh, at that time. Um, stunning uh, and just in my view showing the continuum uh, of total disregard for black life and even dead black people, total uh, disregard. Uh, and I, as I said, I posted the article that you can read from the Washington Post where they're talking uh, about this incident and you can get uh, more detail. Uh, but the widespread disregard for black people, not just the medical officials, but the police officers who couldn't even bother to accurately get the information or to investigate uh, a missing person. Uh, last thing I will get in. Um, matter of fact, I was going to talk uh, about the resurrector uh, at the end, but there's more more coming dealing with that in the second audio segment so i will defer until we get there uh if we missed anybody who had commentary that they wanted to share i will get them now uh i think we had at least two callers who dialed in uh yes hi can i be heard yes ma'am um yeah i had called in a few years ago and and talked about um my uh three older siblings had all contracted polio and my father had not, um, he had not taken, I guess at that time when they were telling people to take their kids to get in, in, inoculated or whatever for polio, my, my father wouldn't do it. So my three older siblings, they all co contracted polio, and so then he took them. And the two oldest, older, older ones, older ones they, they recovered, although when they got older in life, their limbs, you know, became more weaker, and they would fall when they would walk. My sister, she's 66 now. My, my brother has passed. He's, he was 68 when he passed. Um, but uh, my middle sister, the one that was older than me, she didn't recover from polio, and um, the my parents were taking her to the doctor, St. Louis, St. Louis Children's Hospital, and they kept telling them, telling my parents that they were, gonna fix her up and make her stronger and she's gonna be able to walk and my parents I mean I was just a very, very small child at the time but I know that they were paying all the paying in all this money and my sister she just kept getting weaker and weaker. Um uh, first she wore the 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 things on her on her le legs, the I'm sorry I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not sure. I can't think of the, the name of the of the braces. She wore braces on her legs for, for, for a while, and we kept thinking she was going to get stronger, but uh, she ended up getting weaker until she was at the point of she had to be in a wheelchair, and it, she was she looked like she had a stroke on one side because her body leaned to one side, and her she had one foot that was totally useless. And uh, apparently, the doctors told my parents that if they amputate her foot. Um, and then she could get an artificial prosthetic device, and she could walk with that, and that'll make it, and she'd be able to walk.
and everything. So my parents, against their better judgment, they, you know, thinking that these white doctors know better, they uh, got her, took her, they they let them up, up, cut her foot off and stuff. And um, my sister never learned how to walk properly with a prosthetic device. It gave her leg blisters, and she would cry. Um, and um, um, my my father's sister told us later on, after my father had died, that that was one of the biggest regrets in his life was not getting his children uh, vaccinated and for uh, getting his, his daughter's leg cut off and my, and and all, and all of us have weak bones because I think I called in a few weeks ago and said that when I was younger I used to jog and I used to lift weights and all that stuff and I ended up having to get a prosthetic uh, knee because I was at the point I was almost uh, um, where I, where I couldn't walk and stuff and my youngest brother he has arthritis bad in his bones and. My father was a veteran in World War II, and my my youngest brother he thinks that that they probably did something to to, to, to the black veterans over there. They probably uh, gave them something or inoculated them with something that could cause their their sperm to be uh, deformed or something. So when their children, when they had children, instead the children would have all kind of illnesses and stuff, and um. I just wanted to share that. I'm sorry if I couldn't if I couldn't get get things out the way I wanted them to, but I think you can get the gist of what I'm talking about. Thank you for letting me share. For sure, thank you for sharing that. Just that suspicion that your dad had—that right there—is the result of what she's talking about uh, in this book. Um, the uh, I think Shadow is that you? Did you have commentary you were going to add? Yes. Uh, yes, I, uh, I don't know if I've said it before, but I work in healthcare, and uh, some of the things that were mentioned were very familiar to me. Um, one thing in particular was a, a, a woman who came to our hospital uh, who um, the doctors had recommended for her to have an amputation, and she didn't want to do it. And I'll never forget the, the, the doctor's name. His name is Bendetti. He basically insulted this woman and asked her why she didn't want to have an amputation and was she crazy. And then he very callously said, hey, if I, uh, she had diabetes, if I cut off your leg, you'll lose some weight. And I remember it was me and another black nurse that were in the room, and we just we couldn't believe that somebody would say that to a patient. And this Bendetti, was, he's very, uh, very powerful in the hospital, one of their... Remain, uh, and them being upset when you don't do what they want, you know, that was very familiar to me. Also, um, sometimes uh, we would treat prisoners. And one of the things they told us when we fill out consent forms and all that, when you're a prisoner and you get medical care in a hospital, the warden is your power of attorney and all the consent is up to him. So uh, if there's something, if they want to put you on DNR status, do not resuscitate. The warden can actually do that, and your family has no control over that. At least that was true for Illinois state prisoners. 
uh, that was, those were just the two things that I wanted to mention that uh, uh, the book had reminded me of. Wow. That consent piece, again, extremely important. Appreciate that. Uh, we're going to see if we mm-hmm. can get, get uh, the three other people that dialed in who we have not heard from. If you all had comments or you wanted to get in before we get to the second audio segment, we have about six minutes. So if you all can uh, be efficient with sharing, that would be great. Uh, the three people that dialed in more recently. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, just a couple of things. Uh, I've witnessed it myself, and I've also heard it from other students as well. Uh, for, I don't want to say the exact program, but there are certain programs uh, that I know of. I'm sure there's more than ones that I don't know of. Uh, where that uh, there are, you know, the students that are usually, uh, the black students are usually, uh, all right, for example, I'll use, uh, I'll use nursing. Okay, so nursing. Uh, this, the, the white students will be put in a place where they can gain more experience so that by the time they finish the nursing program, they'll be able to practice well, whereas the black students will be put in a place where that they only deal with, for example, maybe like burn victims. And uh, with burn victims, you can't set up any IVs or anything like that because their skin is very sensitive. So um, this is, I mean, the person that witnessed this saw that they were, like all the black students were in that area and then like the white students were like doing different rotations, gaining a lot of experience, being able to set up IVs and stuff like that. Whereas the black students didn't get that experience. So that basically it's like the, the uh, coordinator of the program was preparing them not to be uh, experienced by the time they get into the field. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, institutional racism when it comes to, to, to the to schools that prepare students for the uh, health care system. And um, I've, all, I've also witnessed and also other people have told me about this as well, that usually when there's like black patients for certain uh, problems that they'll come into the ER for, they'll be sent home, whereas uh, other patients who come in for the same exact problem that the black patients come in for, they'll actually be taken care of. Like it could be a fracture or, or something like that where it's like very serious. Um, so, you know, they'll take care of them and like for the black patients, they'll get sent home or like little babies that have ear infections. They won't give them the proper treatment. They'll say, oh, it's nothing. Or they won't even tell them, like, there's an ear infection until, um, you know, the parent takes them to another doctor, and then they find out later, like, way later. So, you know, those are just um, those are just stories that I've heard and that I've witnessed as well. And my last question is that, um, Gus, would I be able to mention something off topic at the end of the show? Because I don't want to throw everything off, it, it, with your permission. Uh, we'll see what the time looks like once we get to the uh, end of the broadcast. Okay. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Uh, the other two people that called in more recently that we have not heard from, did you all have commentary? Yes. Hey, good evening. Uh, Karma, we'll get her first. Okay. You know, that's, that's very interesting about medical schools being in um, poor black areas. They're, they're always in, medical, in poor black areas. And I never put that together. The medical center in Texas, just like one of the foremost medical centers on the planet is just I used to go there all the time I was like it's why do they have this place in the middle of this ghetto I I just never put two 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 and uh, one and one together to get two but um there's another place that that they that they always put the medical schools that I never really thought of until just now and that's always near the really big prisons you'll always find a medical school somewhere in the center of the really huge prisons so and the last place is you know wherever uh, there's a military base and you might have a lot of retired military so that, I think those are the three places where black people live in the cities and 
where the vets are. We love our vets. And uh, where the big prisons are, like Sugar Land. So, uh, and I will say this. Uh, one time um, in a class in a hospital, I was, I was really shocked. You know, there's a lot of rich people there, a lot of, a lot of uh, rich white people there. You know, their children and stuff. Anyway, the guy, and his name, let me name him. His name is Don Seldon. They called him the Don. But uh, he comes in, and he uh, grabs a medical chart, and he walks over to the window, and he throws it out. And he says, and no one touch it. He says, uh, I've just saved someone's medical career. So, I mean, that's just like, I think it's just a joke for them. They, It's just a joke. They probably... They don't even, they never even take that stuff seriously. So, anyway, those are my two observations. Oh, sure. Uh, Victim, you were going to comment? Yes, uh, good evening to everyone. Um, uh, quickly, I wanted to say um, the healthcare or medical field continues to be, uh, there's something very sinister about it. Um, I believe that, for instance, like, you know, a lot of black people suffer from, you know, diabetes and cancer. Um, I think these uh, thresholds of uh, measuring, um, let's say, all the tests that they run people through and stuff, they, you know, they let's say 100 is their measuring point. And then once you break 100, you have whatever, diabetes or cancer, whatever. Um, they never say anything until it's too late, like... You know, you can go in and get tested for something, and let's say you had a uh, 92 on the test and the threshold is 100, you pretty much headed down the road of having whatever um, disease or ailment that, you know, um, you're getting tested for. And and pretty much the only time they act is when you actually have the disease or you've been, okay, you have diabetes now. And they don't act beforehand like, hey, you need to, you know, change your diet or do this or do that or anything and it's something very sinister with that i just see a lot of these white doctors man they have no compassion whatsoever it's kind of like when they're dealing with a, a a human uh especially a black person it's like they're like working on an old chevy really like it's like they have no regard for that person really and um also i'm just curious i'm just i always thought about this like um, the the black people that supposedly suffer or get their victims of gunshots or stabbings and they have to go in for an emergency surgery. I wonder how many of those surgeons deliberately did not save these people's lives. Like they just took a little longer to do something or, you know, um, clot one artery or do some t- or cut something out where people have died. And there's no way to actually prove it. It's just there, you know, they just, hey, you know, we'll just let this nigger die because we don't need them. They're on the streets anyway. Anyway, that's all I have for now. Thank you. Right on. Uh, We will get to the second audio segment just so that we make sure we have ample time for everyone to share. And the second audio after this segment is done. If you had something that you did not get an opportunity to share, just jot a note and we should have time for everybody to share once this section concludes. So we are in Chapter 5. And again, I can't give you the exact page number because I don't have a hard copy, but we're kind of early portion of Chapter 5. Harriet Washington. Medical Apartheid, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number two. 
Other construction sites throughout the country have yielded evidence of medical grave robbing. The largest and earliest African burial site in the nation was revealed in June 1991 during preparations to build on the lower Manhattan site of what is now the Foley Square Federal Office Tower Building in New York City. Construction workers unearthed 427 skeletons in what had been consecrated as the Negroes' burying ground in the 18th century. In 1992, the team of Michael Blakely, director of Howard University's W. Montague Cobb Biological Anthropology Laboratory, found widespread evidence of grave robbing, including missing coffins, as well as bodies and skulls that displayed anatomists' marks. Despite the frequent characterization of blacks as syphilitic, the team did not find the characteristic ridges caused by the disease on the cadaver's bones. Smaller cadaver disposal sites have been found on the campuses of the University of Michigan and the Medical College of Virginia, and more such remains will undoubtedly be unearthed. Why did physicians begin amassing black bodies in the 19th century? Early in that century, the Paris School, or hospital movement, transferred the continental focus from traditional heroic measures of dubious efficacy to clinic-based scientific medicine based upon a system of rigorous scientific education, anatomical knowledge, and experimentation-based therapeutics. A detailed, systemic study of the human body began to supplement the memorization of Materia Medica, the formal study of therapeutics, which was the forerunner of pharmacology. It was no longer sufficient for an amphitheater of students to watch a professor perform a single anatomical dissection. The nascent physician himself required the intimate familiarity that could come only from the dissection of human cadavers. In addition to the needs of medical students, clinicians and researchers needed bodies to autopsy in order to understand the processes by which diseases ravaged the body, and to understand the real, as opposed to the supposed, causes of death. At least so medical school professors said, when urging lawmakers to give them greater access to cadavers. Yet Yale historian John Harley Warner observes that it would be decades before physicians were knowledgeable enough to use the information they gleaned from autopsies to heal. At first, the anatomical course served as just another badge of professionalism. Whatever the true cause, the need for human bodies escalated sharply. Practical or not, anatomical courses were now de rigueur in medical training and medical school applications soared. This further fueled a hunger for corpses, which the laws of the era made very difficult to satisfy. The only legal source of bodies for dissection resulted from a double sentence of execution and dissection, which was quite rare, reserved as punishment for only the most heinous murders. Dr. A. B. Crosby described an execution and dissection sentence pronounced on a black man who was hung about 1800 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. Crosby's first-person account of the subsequent autopsy evokes an appallingly circus-like atmosphere, one hard to distinguish from that characterizing a lynching. All the neighboring physicians were invited to be present and were requested to bring any dissecting instrument they might deem of use. 
Tradition says that one brought a handsaw, another an axe, still another a butcher's cleaver, and the fourth came armed with a large carving knife and fork. The cuticle of this unfortunate Ethiop was subsequently tanned and cut up into small pieces, as souvenirs. The invasive violation involved in the anatomical dissection of a corpse ran counter to very strong 19th-century sentiments regarding the sanctity of the body. Today, a dead body is an alien entity that we encounter briefly in a hospital, funeral home, or place of worship. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, people tended to die at home rather than in hospitals, and the body, imbued with religious and social significance, was lovingly cared for in a way that bound the dead person to his family and society. The corpse was carefully bathed and groomed, and post-mortem photographs, portraits, or other images were often created and distributed. This care of the body certified the person's meaning and status as a member of a family and community. Dissection, however, gave the corpse a very different meaning, limiting him to a bit of useful flesh, an object to be surgically severed from his community, treated with disdain, then discarded like trash. For blacks, anatomical dissection meant even more. It was an extension of slavery into eternity, because it represented a profound level of white control over their bodies, illustrating that they were not free even in death. Burial rituals were so psychologically important that insurance companies sold blacks a macabre social security by collecting relatively high weekly payments toward funeral expenses. Physicians, however, ascribed blacks' horror of postmortem dissection to superstition, complaining that even during epidemics they avoided hospitals because they feared ending up on anatomists' slabs. But whites quietly shared this revulsion, including doctors, who avoided dissecting the bodies of their colleagues. As a result of the widespread discomfort with dissection, 18th-century physicians and students resorted to frenzied, surreptitious dissection of the hospital dead before family or friends could arrive to claim the body. They also preyed upon the bodies of the socially and legally powerless, black Americans. For a hundred years, young white assistant professors of anatomy and uneducated black hospital porters shared the same key responsibility, the furtive procurement of black corpses. Such exploitation of the dead was hardly limited to the South. Most of the bodies used by New York City's Columbia University and New York University were from the Negroes' burying ground. In 1712 and again in 1741, New York slave rebellions were actuated in part by the refusal of slave owners to allow slaves to bury their dead. In 1788, blacks petitioned the New York City Common Council, complaining that medical students made regular Bacchanalian raids on the Negroes' burial ground when, under cover of night and in the most wanton of sallies, they unearthed black bodies to mangle their flesh out of a wanton curiosity and then expose it to the beasts and birds. The Common Council did not deign to answer the petition, and the popular press showed little sympathy. One newspaper opined that 
the only subjects procured for dissection are the productions of Africa. If these are the only subjects of dissection, surely no one can object. Some sympathetic whites, notably Quakers and abolitionists, did object, to no avail. But when emboldened medical students extended their forays into white graveyards at Trinity Church and the Brick Presbyterian Church, New Yorkers objected en masse. Blacks were among the 5,000 rioters who stormed New York Hospital in the two-day Doctors' Riot of 1788, pillaging Columbia Medical School and assaulting physicians in retaliation for disturbing the eternal rest of New Yorkers. By the 1820s, Instruction in anatomy was ubiquitous in medical schools, which were burgeoning. In 1810, there were five medical schools in the United States. In 1860, the nation boasted 65, and by 1890, their number had doubled. The demand for medical cadavers grew correspondingly, with dire consequences for black communities. In 1879, 5,000 cadavers a year were procured for medical use most of them illegally, and in the South, most were those of African Americans. Even in the absence of racial hatred, the bodies of blacks were preferred simply because they made easier targets. No slave could withhold permission for an autopsy or dissection. If a master sent a sick, elderly, or otherwise unproductive slave to the hospital, he usually gave the institution caring for and boarding the slave carte blanche for his treatment and for his disposal. Moreover, the least sensitive masters aggressively exploited their slaves' fear of post-mortem violation. During the transatlantic slave trade, crews discouraged the frequent bloody uprisings among kidnapped Africans by dismembering their bodies as a deterrent to other African captives, who believed that the spirit of the mutilated person would not be able to return to Africa. Dr. Erasmus D. Fenner also noted the effectiveness of post-mortem decapitation in controlling slaves. The Negroes have the utmost horror and dread of their bodies being treated in this manner. For the resurrection man, the black cemetery was the easiest of targets. Most of the black populace could barely afford funerals, to say nothing of guards or mort safes, cage-like arrays of vertical iron gates that were inserted over the coffin to prevent access by grave robbers. In 1827, the African-American newspaper Freedom's Journal suggested an economical defense against grave robbing. As soon as the corpse is deposited in the grave, let a truss of long wheaten straw be opened and distributed in layers, as equally as may be with every layer of earth, until the whole is filled up. By this method, the corpse will be effectually secured. The longest night will not afford time sufficient to empty the grave, though all the common implements of digging be used for that purpose. Whites quietly acquiesced to the violation of black bodies because they saw grave robbing as a zero-sum game. That is, whites knew that physicians' lust for cadavers would be satisfied somewhere, if not from black cemeteries, then from white ones, despite guards, mort safes, and the wounded feelings of white families. To ensure that the anatomy laboratories in the South would continue to be peopled with black, not white, corpses, state legislatures enacted, and newspapers championed, a variety of statutes 
to validate the existing racial disparity with regard to dissection. In 1828, for example, the Georgia legislature considered a proposal to send the bodies of executed black felons to medical societies for anatomical dissection, expressly to ensure that white corpses would be spared. A statesman and patriot correspondent insisted, The bodies of colored persons, whose execution is necessary to public security, may, we think, be with equity appropriated for the benefit of a science on which so many lives depend, while the measure would in a great degree secure the sepulchral repose of those who go down into the grave amidst the lamentations of friends and the reverence of society. The Richmond, Virginia Whig suggested in 1838 that the city's large black population made it a likely site for the establishment of a medical school that would rival those of Philadelphia, because, in Philadelphia, as every professional man versed on the subject well knows, from the almost sole use of whites in the labor of the city, the supply for anatomical purposes is totally inadequate to the wants of a large medical class. A black Richmond newspaper, The Colored American, quickly responded, Medical science requires anatomical subjects. It is not fitting the dignity nor the sensibilities of white men to use their dead bodies for such purposes. And black men are not everywhere to be found. But in Richmond they may be found, and as the dignity and sensibility of a black man are of no account, and the health of slaveholders requires that they should have good physicians, articles to be forthcoming only from a medical college where anatomical subjects are abundant, Ergo, a medical college ought to be established at Richmond. O oh, slavery! Foul spirit of darkness! Not content with gorging thyself with the tears and the blood of thy living victim, thou followest him into his grave, and there tearest him limb from limb, and riotest amid the last relics of his corrupting dust, as if thou couldst be satisfied with nothing short of his annihilation. The writings of private physicians and medical schools reveal that they freely availed themselves of the bodies of blacks who came into their care. In 1839, a Dr. Harris of Savannah lamented his failure to save a group of slave patients who had died from cholera. But within the same sentence, he comforted himself with the reflection that he would certainly have ample material with which to investigate the anatomical characters of the disease on the following day. That same year, Dr. Edward Eve went to the grave site of a slave who had died under his care, intercepted her body, and removed the stomach before her burial to study it in a convenient place of examination. Medical journals also provide evidence of the racial disparity with regard to autopsies. Historian Todd Savitt discovered that between 1849 and 1851, fully 19 of the 24 autopsies that white physicians described in the Transylvania Journal of Medicine and in the Associate Sciences and the Transylvania Medical Journal were performed upon blacks. And this transpired in Kentucky, where the white population greatly dwarfed the black. So were all three of the autopsies on Alabamans who died in an 1853 typhus fever epidemic. Around 1850, doctors' prayers for more cadavers were answered, thanks in part to Jeremy Bentham, 
the British apostle of utilitarianism, who held that laws should be predicated upon actions that produce the greatest good for the most people. For a society that wanted superlative medical care, the greatest good lay in sacrificing the bodies of people who were dead for the well-being of the living. Informed by Bentham's philosophical spirit, northern state legislatures began replacing absolute legal bans on dissection with colorfully nicknamed laws that sought to supply more bodies for dissection to satisfy the medical establishment. But these laws tended to protect the repose of the white, middle, and upper-class populace while sacrificing the bodies of the black and poor. New York passed its Bone Bill in 1854, which gave anatomists legal access to the bodies of almshouse denizens and others of the friendless poor, who were disproportionately black. Pennsylvania's Ghastly Act did the same in 1867. Such laws also had to address petty territoriality among various medical schools. In January 1875, an Indianapolis newspaper interviewed a resurrectionist who confided, Now I'm going to tell you about what I call a mean trick. A stiff had been raised out of grounds supposed to be the peculiar property of one of the colleges and sold to another. It wasn't much of a stiff, a poor, miserable, emaciated Negro that didn't weigh more than 90 pounds, but it made the faculty of blank college madder and hornets to think that a stiff out of their ground had been sold to a rival college. Many blacks claimed that some night doctors killed for anatomical specimens, and Edinburgh's 1828 Burke and Hare affair had demonstrated that this was a real risk. Between Christmas 1827 and October 1828, William Burke and William Hare murdered between 16 and 23 Scottish residents and sold their bodies to anatomy professor Dr. Robert Knox for from 7 to 10 pounds each. When they were discovered, Hare gained his freedom by turning Crown's evidence against Burke, who was convicted and hanged on January 28, 1829. His legacy included the eponymous term burking, which denotes a murder, usually by suffocation, carried out to effectuate a sale to anatomists. Knox was acquitted, as usually happened when physicians were discovered in collusion with body snatchers. Doctors went free, while their black and lower-class confederates were punished. In America, the 1886 burking of Baltimore resident Emily Brown has been amply documented. Brown was a poor white woman who lived in a black neighborhood, and her body sailed to the University of Maryland School of Medicine for $15 by John Thomas Ross and Albert Hawkins, business associates of Anderson Perry, the school's black resurrectionist man, aroused suspicions. There are no documented cases of burked blacks, but this may simply reflect the southern social milieu of the era. There are no legally documented rapes of black women by whites in the South during this period either, but they occurred. The North shared the South's dependence upon black bodies. Medical historian David Humphrey records the widespread belief that by 1788, few blacks were permitted to remain in the grave. As in the South, northern hospitals expected blacks to submit to research, including autopsy and dissection, as payment 
for having been treated in charity wards, and all blacks were consigned to such wards. Northern schools also relied upon clandestine exports of black bodies from the South, which were only briefly interrupted by the Civil War. An industry sprang up in shipping black bodies to northern medical colleges. Dr. F. C. Waite recalled that many bodies of southern Negroes were used in northern medical colleges. A professor of anatomy in a New England medical school told me he had an arrangement under which he received in each session a shipment of twelve bodies of southern Negroes. They came in barrels marked turpentine. This traffic in black bodies for dissection ran in both directions. The 1841 travel memoirs of Englishman James Silk Buckingham contain this clipping. More pork for the South. Yesterday morning it was discovered that a barrel, which had been put into the office of the Charleston packet line for the purpose of being shipped to Charleston, contained ye bodies of two dead Negroes. The cask and its contents were sent up to the police office and placed in the dead house for the coroner. The barrel's contents were addressed to the professors of a medical school. Buckingham added that this was the fourth such discovery that month, and that no further inquiry appears to have been made into the matter, as if it were altogether beneath the notice of white men to trace out these traitors in the dead bodies of blacks. Black graveyards were the favored hunting grounds of northern body snatchers. In 1829, John D. Godman, M.D., wrote of how, on behalf of several Philadelphia medical schools, he had secretly paid the manager of a public graveyard for the privilege of emptying the pits of about fifty to eighty-five cadavers a month during each dissecting season. The reference to a dissection season was pragmatic as well as academic. Before the advent of effective preservative technology, corpses decayed quickly. Except for those corpses that were pickled in whiskey for export, bodies were exhumed during the cool of the academic year, from fall through spring. Todd Savitt explains that blacks were well aware of this morbid seasonality, as evinced by one elderly Virginia slave, who, passing the medical school, shuddered and muttered, Please, God, I hope when I die, it'll be in the summertime. Newspaper descriptions of executions regularly noted that as a matter of course, the bodies of black, but not white, criminals were to be dissected. One account read, The execution of Cook and Coppock, white men, Copeland and Green, colored, took place at Charleston, Virginia, on Friday last. The bodies of Cook and Coppock were taken to Harper's Ferry in a train, which was waiting at the depot. The bodies of the Negroes have been given to surgeons and medical students. When Pennsylvania passed its Ghastly Act in 1867, it stipulated that its medical schools could use only unclaimed bodies of the poor from Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Such laws were insufficient to protect black bodies from continuing to be seized by medical schools, simply because the law supplied too few bodies to the schools. During the 1881 to 1882 academic year, Philadelphia boasted 1,493 medical students, but only 400 cadavers. Both lawfully obtained bodies and those stolen from cemeteries were likely to be those of African Americans. 
As David Humphrey observed, legalization did not substantially alter the social origins of the supply. It simply assured that cadavers would come entirely, rather than primarily, from America's lowest social strata. In 1867, an Ann Arbor newspaper reported that two colored men were caught in Chicago on the night of the 15th with a wagon in which were five dead bodies, which they had taken from the cemetery. They claimed to have been employed by the authority of Rush Medical College. Eight years later, the Indianapolis Herald published an interview with an unnamed resurrection man, an alcoholic physician fallen on hard times. He crowed that he sought corpses from black and pauper graveyards. The stiffs are raised at Greenlawn Cemetery, Mount Jackson Cemetery, and the Poor Farm Cemetery. So far as I know, Crown Hill, a private white graveyard, has never been troubled. Northern medical schools recognized that being unable to acquire sufficient cadavers to attract medical students could mean their dissolution, so they imported black corpses, and in 1933, Howard University's Dr. Montague Cobb, the first African-American professor of anatomy, ironically alluded to the unconsciously egalitarian implications. Our colleagues in the anatomy laboratory recognized in the Negro a perfection in human structure, which they were unwilling to concede when that structure was animated by the vital spark. The clandestine nature of such transactions made estimating the relative numbers of such bodies difficult. But in 1935, Cobb rose to the challenge by analyzing the 2,139 cadavers that had passed through the Laboratory of Anatomy of Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, since 1835. He showed that the bodies of whites were initially used in the Midwest, but that they were rapidly replaced by imported black bodies. Cobb found that, in contrast to white cadavers, which were local, a heavy majority of Cleveland's Negro cadavers emanated from southern states, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky, Mississippi, North Carolina, and Arkansas. After the wartime exodus of blacks from the South, the imported black bodies were replaced by those of resident blacks, out of all proportion to immigration trends. Although there were twelve times more white than Negro deaths, only twice as many whites arrived at the laboratory, or relatively six times more of the Negro dead. In the last five years, the proportion of Negro to white cadavera have been much greater than would be expected from the number of city deaths. Northern medical schools also employed strategies to make the most of the black and poor white populations they had. For example, on February 20, 1810, Dr. John Warren and Professor of Chemistry Aaron Dexter presented the President and Fellows of Harvard University with a memorial and petition for the removal of medical lectures to Boston, in which they made their case for moving Harvard Medical School from the university's home base in Cambridge across the Charles River to Boston, where it could avail itself of cadavers from the poor black and white denizens of the almshouse. Warren successfully argued that one of the great objects of the school was to offer student cadavers for dissection, without which Harvard might be eclipsed by other medical establishments, even in the remote areas of the country. Later that year, 
the medical school moved to Boston. As slavery was abolished in most of the nation, acerbic protests and occasional riots further scarred the medical establishment's relations with black communities. In December 1882, screams and curses rent the air as the Philadelphia morgue was thronged by distraught black mourners who had come to retrieve the bodies of their recently buried loved ones. They were drawn by sensationalistic newspaper accounts of an intercepted grave robbing the night before. At 11 p.m., newspaper reporters had stopped a wagon driven by two white men, Frank McNamee and Henry Pillett. In the back, a black man, Levi Chu, perched on an oilcloth that hid bodies uprooted from Lebanon Cemetery, Philadelphia's African-American burial ground. Levi Chu was the brother of Lebanon Cemetery director Robert Chu, and the bodies were hidden in a wagon bound for Jefferson Medical College. Frank McNamee confessed that for three years he had hauled bodies from Lebanon Cemetery to Jefferson Medical College at the behest of Dr. William Forbes, Jefferson's chief anatomist, who had even given McNamee keys to the anatomy laboratory for greater convenience in completing deliveries. As gatekeeper of the cemetery and the resurrection man's brother, Robert Chu was complicit and presumably received his share of the $8 that Forbes paid for each body. Now, the intercepted bodies lay in the city morgue, awaiting identification by family members. Even allowing for the newspaper hyperbole of the era, the scene was a heartbreaking one. Distraught families vowed vengeance on the grave robbers, and sobs racked a prostrated old woman who had been able to bury her husband only after begging the requisite $20 from his former co-workers at the wharves. Utilizing a disquieting double standard, African Americans excused the resurrectionists and blamed the doctors. An African American minister raged against the doctors, saying, They set the plot afoot and used the men under arrest as pliant tools. But the law didn't agree. A jury of eleven whites and one black sentenced the three grave robbers and the cemetery director to ten-year prison terms. On the witness stand, Dr. Forbes admitted he had paid the resurrection men for 150 bodies a year, but said he enforced a strict don't-ask-don't-tell policy concerning the provenance of the bodies. Seemingly unmindful of the irony, the Philadelphia newspapers praised his subsequent acquittal with the same fervor with which they had condemned the resurrectionists. They did chide him obliquely for having perhaps acted ignorantly or unthinkingly. In both cases, judgments were issued along racial fault lines, not according to ethical or legal precepts. The black populace ignored the fact that the Chews were guilty of a doubly betrayed trust. To people who entrusted the cemetery owner with bodies of their loved ones, and to their larger ethnic community. The racially imbalanced jury and newspaper exonerated the white physician and focused blame on the grave robbers. Man, I feel like I have heard that before. Mm, mm, mm. Context of white supremacy, that is where we will pick up at next week. I can say that I normally would play a little bit more audio. Uh, this is a lengthier book, but we have a lot of participation, and this is a very comprehensive book, so I am playing a little less audio than I normally would, and I'll probably continue that trend as we go. But even with that, we're still about almost a third of the way 
through the book. That's where we'll pick up at uh, next week with the subheading Watching the Bones. We're in Chapter 5, Watching the Bones. That's it. If you would like to participate, the number to dial is 641-715-3640. The number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. All the folks who dialed in during the first segment, uh, if you have commentary that you would like to add, Feel free. Uh, please do not wait till the last minute. We have r- approximately 30 minutes, a little less than 30 minutes left in the program. Do not wait uh, if you're on the East Coast until 11. So, oh man, Gus, I have something that I want to add in. I-, I thought this would be really great. Go ahead and get your hand up now, and we'll make sure we get you in. If you can go ahead and dial in now. If you wait till the end, probably not going to add you in because I do not want to encourage folks lollygagging and then deciding they want to wait till the last minute to speak up. Uh, so, everybody who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, should be with us. Uh, if you have commentary that you would like to share, feel free. Yes, ma'am, I'll be heard. Uh, we'll get Mr. Demi for. Okay. Uh, the only legal source of bodies for dissection resulting from a double sentence of execution and dissection which was quite rare, reserved as punishment for only the most hideous murderers. You know, I thought about that part, and then they go on to describe that a black man fit all of these criterias, right? But then the way they describe them showing up with handsaws, just carving this man up in front of an audience, you know, it's something that, you know, even a horror movie, you know, would not compare to this. And if you add on the fact that black people looked at dissection, you know, more, you know, of an extension of slavery, you know, it was a, you know, in eternity, you had no control over your body in life and even in death. And it added on to the uh, degradation and, you know, hurt that they felt. And even into the early 60s, those insurance agents used to come around, you know, getting the weekly payments from the black people. You know, they were so scared that, you know, they wouldn't be buried properly or that their bodies may get stolen from these grave robbers. And they were just extorting the money from those people weekly, on a weekly basis. But another interesting part is where they said whites quietly acquisted to the violation of black bodies because they saw grave robbing as the sub-zero gain. That is, whites knew that physicians' lust for cadavers would be satisfied somewhere, if not from black cemetery, then from white. Despite guards, march safes, and the wounded feelings of white family. So 
they was just giving it up. Giving up, go ahead, get the black ones, because we do not want any white bodies used in this manner. So I'll mute my line on that, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. For sure. Thomas in New York, you were going to comment? Oh, yes. Um, and um, sorry, Mr. Demi, for talking when you were talking. I uh, apologize. Um, this book is, um, man, it's hard to listen to, man. Um, I always wondered where the concept of grave robbers came from. I thought it was to rob people's, you know, from their jewelry and stuff they were buried with. But I never took it as being um, uh, an actual, um, you know, you robbing people for their body parts. So you could do experiments with them. I mean, they're like a bunch of mad scientists. Um, that was the Frankenstein type stuff. You know, you're digging up graves just so you can, you know, them to a college so they could do experiments with this dead body and I guess that's why they've mastered their pathology and coronary techniques today I mean look at all the years of experience they've had doing it um, I often say that you know I, I know for sure when uh, you go to give blood they've never asked me this and I've only given blood a couple of times but um, they ask white people if they've been to Europe over the last four years, and if so, they can't give blood, um, which is strange because I, I was talking to Roz about this one day. I don't think their blood's any good. They need our blood. I don't think their organs are any good. They need our organs. That's why they need high levels of crime and um, things happening in the black communities. If you look in them all-white rural places, they don't never have an organ or anything. You know, they have to have it flowing in from, you know, Chicago or New York or Atlanta. You know, I mean, they have to they have to get it from the black people. Their stuff isn't interchangeable. You know, it's a one-time use, a duplicate. And um, I think this book is sort of hammering its home. I, I, it's just a, impossible for me that none of these doctors don't understand that they're genetically inferior. They're... They, they have to know this. They're doctors, you know, so they're doing all this. All, everything they're doing is a lie, and it's like a, a blatant lie. Um, lastly, um, Mr. Ron Butler, the, the author, as soon as I saw his picture, I went to your Twitter page. I was like, oh, that's Obama. Um, he plays Obama. He's a comedian, too, and um, his father is a very melanated black man, um, Bahamian Calypso singer Ronnie Butler Jr., um, Sr., and he's Ronnie Butler Jr., um, so obviously his mother had to be of a very light complexion or white, um, uh, for him to get take on that, that skin color. But, um, he's definitely a black man, I think, um, by the definition, based off of what his father is. And I'll meet my line. Thank you. For sure. Uh, folks, we have not heard from, if y'all have commentary, uh, speak up, please. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, greetings to you again, Gus. Um, I was thinking, just with all of this grave robbery and um, modern and past body part robbery and organ stealing, it makes me think, like, in the living will, I want to, like, deny an autopsy. I don't want them cutting me up at all. <laughs> just put me in the ground like it is, and if you want to find out, if my family members want to find out how I, how I died or what the cause is, go to a Yoruba priest or an African traditional priest, and they'll give you the answer you need without chopping me up. Because I just think the the moment they take you into a morgue 
it's for black people, it's a wrap. Like it's just over at that point. You have no control over anything, and you you're gonna be hollow. They're gonna put stuff you with newspaper and be like, yeah, the organs are there, and you'll be sitting there as the family thinking everything is normal, and you have literally a shallow shallow uh, hull of a human being being placed into the ground. So I think I'm gonna do that in a living will. Like no autopsy, just just leave it and take a wild guess or go to an African traditional priest to find out how I died. But let me get to the book. This is crazy. Um, uh, so there's an interesting section on page 126. At the bottom it says, Moreover, the least sensitive matters, masters excuse me, aggressively exploited their slaves fear of post-mortem violation. During the transatlantic slave trade, crews discouraged the frequent bloody uprisings among kidnapped Africans by dismembering their bodies as a deterrent to other African captives who believed that the spirit of the mutilated person would not be able to return to Africa. Dr. Erasmus D. Fenner also noted the effectiveness of postmortem decapitation in controlling slaves. The Negroes have utmost horror and dread of their bodies being treated in this manner. Um, this reminds me of just how sick white people are that, I mean, it reminds me of what they did to Patrice Lumumba when they uh, finally assassinated slash executed him and um they chopped his body up they put him into they burned them after they burned him, they put him into vats of acid so that they had no body to bury and the uh indigenous african people in the congo especially his particular ethnic group took that as a complete destruction of his his spirit's ability to um to manip to maneuver in the world of the dead and it's like they want to eradicate every remnant of the black body, especially for those black people who they have a severe disdain for. Um, and it reminds me of the Native Americans when um, a lot of times most of us have learned that scalping was a tradition that started with Native Americans, and that's actually incorrect. That tradition started with white people um, scalping Native Americans, and the Native Americans felt that that was such severe disrespect, they started doing it back to white people. Um, so that just goes to show that exactly what they did to, you know, um, American Africans is just what they've done everywhere else they go. They find a way, I guess, I guess they find out what cultural disrespect is for a particular group of people. And they exploit that to the maximum as they exploit any other perceived weakness of a group of people. Um, then I found another section telling on 129, it says, uh, New York passed its own bill in 1854, which gave anatomists legal access to the bodies of almshouse denizens and others of, of the friendless poor who were disproportionately black. Pennsylvania's Ghastly Act did the same in 1867. Such laws also to address pretty, petty excuse me, per, territoriality among various medical schools. That made me think. Medical schools were basically functioning like gangs. They had their own territories. They basically divvied up the black bodies like, hey, I'm going to take this group of black bodies from this section. You need to stay out of my section. I wonder if they did, you know, drive-bys and whatnot on each other because they were taking bodies from areas that they weren't supposed to. So, it, I mean, like, they function no different than, you know, modern-day gangs, which I would say um, would be like the U.S. government, the police department, and all the other alphabet letters you can think of that they use now to um, now terrify and terrorize black people today. Um, also, I found a section telling on 130 um, where it says uh, North, North, the North shared the South's dependence on black bodies. Medical historian David Humphrey records the widespread belief that by 1788, few blacks were permitted to remain in 
as in the South, northern hospitals expected blacks to submit to research, including autopsy and dissection, as payment for having been treated in charity wards, and all blacks were consigned to such wards. Northern schools also relied upon clandestine exports of black bodies from the South. Which, excuse me, which were briefly interrupted by the Civil War. An industry sprang up in shipping black bodies to the North, Northern excuse me, Medical Colleges. Dr. F.C. Waite recalled the bodies of Southern Negroes were used in the Northern Medical College, Colleges. A professor of anatomy in a New England medical school told me he had an arrangement under which he received each session, in each session a shipment of 12 bodies of Southern Negroes. They came in barrels marked turpentine. And this kind of reminds me of um, drug dealers, you know, like um, they'll they'll ship, uh, they'll have a shipment of fish coming in, and the, sh- the fish have cocaine stashed in them somewhere, or they have coffee grounds, and in the coffee grounds there'll be cocaine, so it's mislabeled for what the true cargo is. And um, this kind of brought me to like Frank Lu- Lucas when he had uh, what they call the cadaver connection, where he was shipping heroin into the United States um, using the bodies of U.S. soldiers to to clandestinely ship the cocaine, I mean, the heroin into the country from the Far East. And um, again, that whole concept started with white people, the mislabeling of uh, goods, of which were actually human beings, our ancestors, um, under the premise of whatever label they gave it with the intent to destroy those black bodies. So this really gets deep into the psychopathology of white people. And then... um, We'll have to uh, leave it there. We have some other folks just make sure we get everybody in. Sure. No Uh, problem. Appreciate it. Uh, anybody else that we have not heard from? Did you have commentary you wanted to get in? Uh, can, can I be heard? Can yes. yes, ma'am. Okay. I just wanted to um, say I wonder um, how it affected the black people that uh, after um, the Civil War, a lot of uh, black people invented um, Memorial Day when they would go to the to, to the graves and they would dig up all their uh, dead to dead relatives and take them to different burial grounds to be buried. I mean, I wonder if they if if they're dead if their dead was actually there. You know, cause when I was reading that, you know, I thought about that. You know, so I don't know if she's going to talk about that or not. But that's just, that's just something to, to to ponder on. I just want to say that. Appreciate it. Uh, other folks that haven't commented uh, from the second section, do you have commentary you want to get in as well? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, is it okay if I mention the off-topic thing? You still want me to wait? We're not doing off-topic stuff right now. This is just focused on the book right now. Okay, no problem. Then I have one thing to mention. Then. Um, it is pertaining to the topic of the book. I'm not, I'm not sure if you mentioned it already in the show because I've been in and out. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Donovan Hill who's passed away. He was a Pop Warner football player, paralyzed at 13 and dead at 18 because the doctor accidentally cut an artery during the procedure. Uh, to me, um, I don't see how that how a doctor with a lot of experience could just accidentally cut an artery, but that pertains to the book. I don't know if you know about it or if anybody knows about it, but I just wanted to mention that. Appreciate that. I mean, my line. Medical errors started with that clip at the beginning. Medical errors, third leading cause of death in the country. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, did you all have commentary you wanted to get in? Just make sure we're not lollygagging. Uh, anybody that had a uh, hand up that has not commented during the second section, did you have anything you wanted to get in? 
I'll assume uh, that folks are just listening. That's mildly surprising because there are a lot of folks who had hands up. But I will assume if you muted your line or what have you, you should figure it out in the next 10 minutes uh, before we uh, wrap things up. Um, just looking over my notes from Chapter 5. Uh, anything that stood out that I want to make sure that we got in. Um, I guess number one, I would start with someone uh, wrote, I'd said this for people that listen to the archives. And if you're not able to tune in um, during the live broadcast, if you drop me an email, then I'll just read your commentary uh, on air. Uh, and so that way you can still be involved in the, in the, in the uh, dialogue. Uh, we had one person uh, who wrote in uh, their comment that they wanted to make sure was shared. Let's see. Uh, their comment was, I've been following along in the archive while reading the book. It's been hard but a necessary read. I love hearing the insights of the callers and have nothing to add to their information, but I wholly see the connection of the false medical theories of the old, current, muddy-grubbing medical-industrial complex in Atlanta. Gritty Hospital has a lab full of black people's organs upon which to sell and or experiment. It seems that the pathology of white people never stops. Certainly you have a massive population of black people uh, in Atlanta, and I even remember, I think folks have mentioned uh, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks repeatedly as we've been reading uh, the text. Uh, John Hopkins uh, as a training facility, training hospital, a uh, large population of black people in that area, the Baltimore area as well, uh, Freddie Gray. Uh, let's see, from Chapter 5, things that stood out. Oh, I thought I'd already pressed my tab here. Okay, chapter five, things that stood out. The consent thing came up again. Yeah, I thought it was uh, the portion where she says uh, most of the bodies used by New York City's Columbia University and New York University were from the Negroes burying ground 29 in 1712 and again in 1741 New York slave rebellions were actuated in part by refusal of slave owners to allow slaves to bury their dead. I think folks have, have already touched on the consistent and deliberate disrespect of dead black people. I know we've talked about that on uh, this program just this year. Um, we talked about the Zong, uh, where they laid out exactly what we heard this week in this section of the reading, the second portion, uh, how they would deliberately uh, mutilate dead black people in order to keep rebellions down. Uh, that was done extensively even on the slave ships before we even came to uh, this part of the world. I was trying to find uh, the footnote that related to that because there was more information about this, uh, what was happening in New York. I just wasn't able to get the, get the information while we were reading. If I track it down, I will post the link and share. Uh, people did. I posted the picture of the narrator, Ron Butler. I think Thomas in New York gave his view. Some of the people who responded on Twitter, uh, all the people that I saw thus far, they do not think he would be accepted as a white person. They think he's non-white, uh, the non-white narrator, Ron Butler. Uh, let's see. I thought, again, we had this notion of sympathetic whites uh, where she's talking about, she says, the Common Council did not deign the answer did not deign to answer the petition, and the popular press showed little sympathy. This is for the stealing of black corpses. 
Uh, one newspaper opined that the only subjects procured for the dissection are the productions of Africa. If these are the only subjects of dissection, surely no one can object. 31. Uh, some sympathetic whites, notably Quakers and abolish, abolitionists, did object, but to no avail, which again just gets to my point uh, with Dr. Kanban. He says they are statistically insignificant. Even if you are able to find a single or three white people that maybe seem like they might today care about a Negro or three, they don't have the ability to do anything. And you still have to be suspicious of even them, as we talked about with Benjamin Rush, just because they might support you in a cause today does not mean that they will not practice white terrorism tomorrow. At any rate, uh, when she continues, so she has that uh, in the first paragraph uh, where she says, I checked just the term that she used I thought was interesting. This is right above the paragraph that I just read where she says in 1788, blacks petitioned the New York City Common Council complaining that medical students made regular bacchanalian raids on the Negroes' burial ground when under cover of night and in the most wanton of sallies. I didn't know what bacchanalian meant, right? So I look up the term bacchanalian, characterized by or given to drunken revelry, riotously drunken. Now, if that is getting drunk, getting sauced up, and let's go have a good time and rob Negro graves, wow, you are telling me a lot about white culture. And I would even say you can pair. That's two different incidents of white drunken debauchery where in the half has never been told they got drunk at Andrew Jackson when he was having his inauguration. It got so bad he had to crawl out of the window. And this one, they get so drunk, it's time to go raid the Negro cemetery. That is white culture. Beacon of civilization. Mm. Um, let's see. Yeah, we already covered that. I thought karma was right on point. They mentioned it several times. Uh, learning facility, put it next to the Negro. So we'll have easy access to our buck Negros, and we can use them in life and in death for whatever exploitation we come up with. Man, that last portion, I think I had some other... I think I had some some other things, but just the portion at the end where she talks about where I guess some of these people get caught grave robbing and they go to trial and they end up prosecuting, convicting the black grave robbers, but they do not prosecute the white doctors whom they were working for. I said that logic was going to come up and this is consistent where I've heard black people that go after Nurse Rivers with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and, you know, curse her. She's been dead for a long time now and they curse her and she's, you know, the even most evil, vile thing that walked the earth. That pattern of focusing the blame, the anger, the frustration on the least powerful black people who might be involved in this knowingly or unknowingly, it just does not seem logical to me at all when the people that are most to blame that are benefiting, directing, most powerful in all of this they get to walk scot-free and most of the time anonymous they're not even named that to me is just another illustration and it's pitiful of the system of white supremacy where black people are always culpable regardless of what happens even get blamed for slavery white people never get blamed it's always oh they made an error or they're unconscious or they didn't know or it's just sad or whatever the case may be uh but even before she got to the last portion the last paragraph which i thought was just uh, extremely important but before she got to that when she said that the black people at least a portion of them they seem to have the correct logic when they talked about I think they, they said that they I guess where some of these black people got caught uh, or yeah they got caught robbing these graves 
and they were upset. This was in Philadelphia. And she says, utilizing a disquieting double standard, African-Americans excused the uh, resurrectionist and blamed the white doctors. An African-American minister raged against the doctors, saying they set the plot afoot and used men under arrest as pliant tools. But the law didn't agree a jury of 11 whites and one black sentenced the three grave robbers and the cemetery director to a 10-year prison term. That, in my view, is the correct logic. That's the way that we should analyze and process this anytime when white people are doing anything uh, racist and what have you, attacking us. Uh, make sure that the people that are most in charge get the blame. Uh, I will stop that. I was going to read that last paragraph again because I think that is uh, super important, but I might just replay her analysis because I think she's going to bring this up again because there are other examples in the book where white people are terrorizing whites. They're using some black people to get this done, and the black people end up being blamed, named, accused, all of that, and the white people, nothing happens to them at all. We don't even, we don't even know who these people are. Uh, I will stop there. Do we miss anybody, anybody who didn't get to comment at all? Uh, I didn't uh, comment on the second uh, second uh, uh, reading. Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Uh, I I recall, correct me if I'm wrong. I recall someone mentioning about that they were suspicious about uh, uh, in within trauma that uh, in emergency proceedings that uh, non-white people are not afforded the same uh, measures of treatment as white people uh, uh, would get. Uh, I think that was something that somebody brought up in the first, first half. I, I would, I would uh, also concur with that person uh, based on experiences from being a firefighter. And for the most part, most of my career was in uh, areas where non-white black people are at. Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I can't, I can't, you know, you, well, we can't prove white supremacy as long talking about that. But nevertheless, I've, I've had always had the same uh, feeling. Uh, first of all, it's a stressful environment in itself <clears throat> because of the frequency of call after call after call after call. And uh, that right there is going to be a uh, a uh, atmosphere to whereas uh, a um, medical worker would just say, ah, well, you know, I mean, they're already, they're already not breathing or something like that. So, I, I mean, it, it just leave it alone. You know, as far as that concerned, uh, it does happen. It does happen. Uh, I can tell you that. Um, also, uh, one observation that I thought about uh, that I know that it, that it's true: most of the emergency medicine, based on especially trauma, is actually uh, from. Uh, white people who practice racism and, and uh, involved with killing people all over the world from their experiences of in these wars. That's where they get, that's where they get most of their uh, know-how, quote-unquote, uh, knowledge of uh, trauma uh, medicine. 
uh, is from these wars that they are uh, killing, especially non-white people, such as like Air Rescue that everybody's familiar with. That came from Korea and, and Vietnam. Uh, as far as uh, uh, racist white man and woman going over to different parts of the world and causing wreaking havoc, and in turn, oh well, we need a more proficient way to uh, to uh, uh, rehabilitate our our dying uh, uh, that sort of thing, and and eventually it, it filters down to uh, back to here. You know, as far as uh, the, the a more correct way to uh, uh, deal with uh, traumatic uh, injury. So uh, that that that's how the system of racism plays a direct part in in even what we see commonly see today as far as uh, traumatic uh, medicine. Okay. For sure. Uh, I assume the other folks just uh, didn't have as much to say on the, the second half uh, of the reading. Um, the folks who dialed in who had a hand up. Um, I was going to check to see, Ross, if you had one more thing you wanted to share. I know you didn't get to share everything that you had down. If you had one more thing you wanted to get in before we wrap up. Uh, I know Oscar Grant, uh, the black male who was shot and killed at the beginning of 2009. They made Fruitvale Station based on him. I don't think, as many people know, we did a program on this. There was a lawsuit filed against the EMT in Oakland alleging that they did not do everything that they could to save his life, that in fact, if they had done their job appropriately, it's possible that Oscar Grant may have survived uh, being shot uh, at the BART station by the suspected race soldiers. And it continued that they were watching Johan Meserly, the uh, suspected racist who shot and killed Oscar Grant, that when he was having his trial and conviction and everything, that these white EMT officers were making racist jokes and just making it very clear uh, their dedication to white supremacy and rooting for Meserly and hoping that he was exonerated and wouldn't have to uh, serve any time uh, for killing this black male. But that was a very important aspect of the Oscar Grant case that got very uh, little attention. It is in the archives. 2011, we had uh, one of the white males that was involved. In fact, he worked uh, with the EMT crew uh, that went out there and did not do their job correctly. It is in the archives 2011. Roz, do you have uh, anything concise you wanted to share? One, I guess the most important thing maybe that you didn't get to share? Uh, yes. Um, one was well, I had two brief things. Is it okay? Because they're both pretty short. Let's roll. Okay. The first one has to do with um, the section on page 131 where they talk about um, they talk about dissection season where they had uh, specific months in which they would actually uh, actually dissect bodies. And uh, it says that Todd Savage explains that blacks were well aware of this morbid seasonality as events by one elderly Virginia slave who passing the medical school shuddered and muttered, please God, I hope when I die it'll be in the summertime. And it just made me think of the secrets that our elders are carrying. Um, just for her to have such a visceral reaction, just driving past the hospital, that um, you know, there's so much that we, that we don't know that um, our ancestors are carrying and our elders might be carrying. So again, the importance of speaking to our elders, and then the um, excuse me, the final section was um, actually on page 134 that briefly says utilizing a disquieting double standard, African Americans excuse these resurrectionists and blame the doctors. An African-American minister raged against the doctor, saying they set the plot afoot and used the men under arrest as client tools, but the law didn't agree. A jury of 11 whites and one black sentenced to three grave robbers and cemetery directors to 10 years in 10 year prison terms. And I just thought that was a, uh, even in their, uh, their 
uh, grief, they were able to have the black self-respect to understand that these people were just tools of the system of white supremacy. And it's just something for us to all think about that even those black people who choose to be on the wrong side of history, that happens to be their response to racism and white supremacy. And, and for those of us who are warriors in the struggle, our response is the opposite. So I just wanted to just focus on that because I thought that was very important. Thank you so much. For sure. For sure. The, uh, Dr. William Forbes was the uh, white male who was acquitted uh, in all of this, uh, where they did go ahead and convict uh, the black resurrectionists, uh, as they called them. Um, I thought it was interesting. The term that she used when uh, describing this was (coughs) a disquieting double standard. I thought that was an interesting uh, descriptor. Uh, because to me, it's logical. It's not. I don't. I would have to ask her like what what she means specifically when she says a disquieting double standard. Because to me, it suggests that maybe there was something incorrect that they should have viewed uh, both Dr. Forbes and the Black Resurrectionists uh, in the same manner, using the same uh, criterion, uh, and saying that you all were involved in this and you're both equally culpable. And I just. I don't think that that is the case at all in the system of white supremacy. Racists are able to use uh, victims of racism, non-white people, for all sorts of uh, nefarious activities. They do this all the time, and I certainly don't think, I certainly would not judge uh, non-white people victims who are involved in this knowingly or unknowingly. I would not judge them by the same standard that I would judge a white person involved in this just because the white person invariably has much more power, and that certainly seems to be the case. Uh, in this instant, just looking at what happened in the trials. Dr. Ford acquitted the black males. You're going to jail. Anywho, uh, we will pick up there next week. Uh, Watching the Bones, that's a subheading. We're still in Chapter 5. We are almost a third of the way through the book. If uh, you have commentary you're not able to share during the live program, feel free to uh, drop us an email and uh, we'll read it during the program next week. Uh, We should be here tomorrow for the compensatory call-in at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Global Sunday Talk on Racism this Sunday, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Uh, Looking forward to hearing from our folks that are outside uh, the states. Uh, Pam will be here next Wednesday. We have programs before that, too. But lots coming up uh, as we roll along spring 2016. If you can't find something in the archives, uh, if you get confused, uh, have guest suggestions, gripes, complaints, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com racism hyphen notes.blogspot.com listener supported counter racist radio PayPal button is in the top right corner. I will post it online. I know Mr. Demery asked earlier. I'll post it on Facebook and I'll tweet it as well. Uh, If you would like to invest, if you're not in the PayPal, feel free, drop an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Man, I will say it again since it popped up in this book. I think that's at least the second time that it's popped up in this book. Uh, Racist using alcohol or some other form of uh, narcotics so that we're not thinking clearly to make us easier to abuse and terrorize. Woo! Sobriety would be best under any era of racism, white supremacy, uh, I know it's warming up and people are celebrating, probably got some folks that are graduating or you have, you know, children, friends, nieces, cousins uh, that are graduating and folks are doing their celebrations and barbecues and all that stuff. 
even if you're going to do that, you still want to be codified uh, because we are still operating uh, where we are being attacked, terrorized 24-7 worldwide, all areas of activity. If you're going to be out in a vehicle, you do not want to be under the influence that I mean, you talk about worst possible conditions to be pulled over. Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw. Perhaps you even bump into a white person that's not an enforcement officer, but is white and does have a firearm. Man, you talk about making a situation a thousand times worse if you are under the influence and cannot think clearly and make the best possible decisions to keep yourself safe and anybody that you might be responsible for. You're just making their job way, way easier to stomp on us, put their foot on our neck, keep it there, even take your life if you are under the influence. That goes if you're a driver, passenger, pedestrian. If you're behind the wheel, even if you're in a vehicle, period, buckle up. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with enforcement officers, race soldiers. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.